This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Mike Hagan, you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio, it's community radio, 
KOPN, Columbia, serving Columbia, and Bunston, and High Point, and Millersburg, and Marshall, Shamrock, Roachport, Kingdom City, lots of areas around mid-Missouri, and uh, this is Radio Orbit, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. every Sunday morning, coming to you live from the studios here in downtown Columbia, Missouri. My name is Mike Hagan. I'm your host every week here on Radio Orbit. And tonight, I'm very excited about the show I've got to bring to you. It's going to be real cool. We've got Ph.D. marine biologist Dr. Michael Heisen and his associate Paradise Newland, who will be joining us live from Hawaii, uh, from Hilo, uh, in about 55 minutes. We'll have Dr. Heisen and, uh, and Paradise on the phone. And we're going to be talking about dolphins and whales and... Uh, uh, the intelligence of these creatures and the ability that these creatures have to communicate not only amongst themselves but also uh, with human beings and uh, there are lots and lots and lots of incredible details to the story but uh, we won't talk too much about it now because we're going to cover that in about an hour uh, but in the meantime uh, prepare to have your your uh, your socks blown off this information uh, regarding these Creatures, and I, I hesitate to say animals. Of course, human beings are animals as well. We are the, the human animal. Uh, but uh, the dolphins and the whales are animals as well. Uh, they are mammals. Uh, they have brains that are larger than human brains. And we're going to be talking a lot about that and what that means. Uh, but the bottom line is they are absolutely astounding creatures. Dr. Heisen has been learning about them and working with them for the great majority of his life. And um, he's going to bring some of that information to you guys tonight, along with his associate, Paradise Newland, who is a uh, first and foremost a mother, and a mother who has had a birth uh, on the beach with the dolphins present. And she's going to tell us the story of uh, 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 of the birth of her second son, and maybe the birth of her first son too. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, so that's what we'll be talking about tonight: dolphins and whales and the extraordinary abilities of these creatures. So that's coming up in just about 50 minutes. So stick around. Dr. Michael Heisen, Ph.D., marine biologist from the Sirius Institute in uh, Hilo, Hawaii. Now, if you want to check this out beforehand, there are lots of uh, images and things that we're going to be uh, talking about tonight. The website for Dr. Heisen is www planet puna p l a n e t p u n a dot com planet puna dot com and one more time that's the word planet p l a n e t and then the word puna p u n a no spaces no nothing dot com planet puna dot com you can go there and uh, there's a, a bunch of information <clears throat> regarding the work that Dr. Michael Heisen and uh, uh, Paradise and some of the other folks down there at the Sirius Institute are doing. Uh, so check that out, and you can follow along online as we discuss the uh, dolphins and the whales tonight. Now, um, uh, Dr. Heisen was on uh, the Jeff Rents program just a few weeks ago. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Jeff Rents does a... Um, uh, a nationally broadcast, nationally syndicated radio program every evening from uh, 10 o'clock until 1 o'clock 
Los Angeles time. I think in California is where Jeff is. In any case, uh, Jeff is a friend of mine, and he has some images that uh, are up at his site. And uh, I'm going to give out that web address a little bit later um, so you can go there and look at the imagery that we'll be talking about. Rather than uh, upload all that stuff to uh, another website, we've got everything up already on Jeff's site. And um, I uh, will uh, be certain to let Jeff know that we borrowed his bandwidth and uh, we're using, uh, using those things, but I'm sure that he won't mind and he's a real good guy. And if you're not familiar with Jeff Rents, check out his program and check out his website at www.rents.com. That's rents.com. Uh, Jeff is a, uh, since we're talking about him, he's a tremendous newsman. And his website, rents.com, is uh, probably one of the most incredible Internet archives of information that exists out there and uh, with all all kinds of different subjects uh, Jeff does get involved in the political arena a little bit uh, but he is a, uh, a seeker of truths and uh, there's a tremendous amount of information about a tremendous amount of different topics over there at rents.com and uh, dolphins and whales obviously being one of those things that Jeff is interested in so uh, so we're going to sneak over there and, uh, and uh, uh, take a look at those images that are on Jeff's site as well a little bit later Okay, uh, it is 2.12 in the a.m. on November 7th, 2004. Just drove into town here. There's a, a low, a big low orange moon, about a quarter moon rising in the east. Sort of eerie, actually, out tonight. And um, lots going on around Columbia. Had the KOPN uh, listener party tonight uh, was a, uh, a party that KOPN sponsored for the listeners that help support this station. It was down at Mojo's and Vic Chestnut was down there playing his guitar and playing some of the interesting music that he always brings to town. And that was pretty fun. A lot of people down there. Thanks for coming out and supporting KOPN and uh, thanks for supporting your community radio station and, uh, and uh, we really appreciate all the uh, all of the generous uh, things that the community of Columbia and the surrounding area have done to keep KOPN on the air for 31 years. So kudos to all you guys. And uh, if you didn't make it out tonight to Mojo's, it was a good time. Wish you would have been there. So, uh, oh, what, what do we do after that? After that, Michael Burks, incredible blues player, uh, uh, picking up the guitar and playing, playing some. Uh, some blues down there at Mojo's after the Vic Chestnut show. So it was a great night for music out there. Uh, I think Papa Roach was down at, uh, at the Blue Note, if I remember right. So anyway, lots going on, as always, on a Saturday night in Columbia. And a beautiful night as well and a real lovely day uh, during the day yesterday. Today's supposed to be just as nice. So let's get right into things here. Um, the uh, I want to say thanks real fast for the emails I've been getting. I appreciate the response and I appreciate the support that you guys are giving to the show. And uh, keep them coming. I like to hear what's on your mind and I like to, uh, like to know your thoughts. So thanks to everyone for the emails. Also, hello to all the people who have been listening over the web. Even though you guys don't get to listen live, um, I appreciate the fact that you listen after the fact once we get these shows archived up on the web. Um, and uh, I appreciate you guys listening no matter when you listen, whether it's live or whether it's any other time after that, uh, during the middle of the day or the middle of the night, we put that stuff up on the web so that everybody can listen to it anywhere in the world, anytime they like. Okay, uh, with that in mind, the website is www.radioorbit.com. 
R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com, RadioOrbit.com. There's just one O in the middle there. So you can check out uh, the website, and if you go to the archives page, you'll see all of the past programs for Radio Orbit are there. Uh, just sitting there ready for you to click on and open up your little Windows media player, and uh, you can stream those shows and listen to them. So check it out, www.radioorbit.com. Uh, my email address is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O. That's orbitradio at AOL.com. And I always welcome your emails, and I love to hear your comments and questions, and uh, if you have any uh, concerns or if you have a uh, desire to get more information about a particular subject that we talk here on Radio Orbit, uh, uh, that we talk about here on Radio Orbit, you're more than welcome to send me an email with any of that stuff, and uh, I'll do my best to get back to you and uh, try to help uh, with uh, whatever whatever it is that concerns you. The phone number here in the studio... Oh, by the way, I've got some... Um, I've got a couple tickets to Medeski, Martin, and Wood, uh, an incredible uh, live show that's going to be coming to, uh, uh, to town here at the Blue Note uh, next Friday. Uh, so anybody who's interested in uh, getting a, a pair of Medeski, Martin, and Wood tickets, pretty expensive tickets, uh, $20 tickets, I think. So I've got a pair of those. I'll be giving those away probably before the top of the hour, actually, because uh, once we get Dr. Heisen on, uh, I'm, I'm going to probably... Uh, I have a little bit more on my mind here than dealing with phone calls and giving away tickets and stuff because I'm the only guy in the studio, as I typically am, on Saturday nights at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. So, uh, so Modesky Martin Wood, if you're up for, uh, for a jazz program, uh, funk and funkadelic, crazy blues and jazz, all kinds of stuff mixed together, Modesky Martin Wood next week uh, at the Blue Note. And like I said, I've got a couple tickets. Just listen in. I'll tell you when to call me for that. Uh, you can... Uh, the phone number that you'll be calling when I do do that is uh, 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676. Okay, studio number here, uh, 573-874-5676 and uh, 1-800-895-5676. And uh, for anybody who's calling right now, just hang in there. I'm not going to be picking up the phone for a few minutes. Um, we'll be giving away those tickets in about, uh, uh, well, within within 45 or so. Okay. All right, what else is going on? Uh, let's do space weather update real fast. Um, I've got a, some, uh, some important stories that I want to talk about. So uh, we'll do space weather real fast and uh, play a little music and be back after that. Okay, space weather, the Leonid meteors. Um, actually, let's talk about the sun real fast, and we'll go back and talk about the Leonids. Uh, we typically go through uh, current solar activity on the program, so we'll do that real fast here. Um, as you know, over the last couple months, I've been mentioning that the solar activity has been pretty low and uh, hasn't been uh, a whole lot going on in the sun. Well, that's changed over the last two weeks, and we've got a number of pretty active sunspot areas now that have been launching flares at us for quite a few days straight now. The, um, uh, in, in, in particular, there's a sunspot uh, region that's called number 696, and that has been uh, uh, just... Uh, Churning and burning, all kinds of funky magnetic fields above that uh, above that spot are twisting and turning and launching just flare after flare. There have been uh, over nine M-class flares uh, just in the last three days or so. Um, and if you remember Kent Stedman from Cyberspace Orbit last week when we were talking about that, he mentioned uh, the sort of railgun effect of these uh, of these flares as they come off in succession, one after another, they have sort of a cumulative effect on the Earth's 
magnetic field. And um, uh, a number of these uh, M-class flares did have coronal mass ejections associated with them. And so those are heading for Earth, those CMEs, and they are due to arrive at intervals uh, coming up this week. Now, the question about that is, again, there's a cumulative effect of these coronal mass ejections. Uh, if you have one and it hits the, the magnetic field of the Earth, it weakens the magnetic field of the Earth a little bit. If you have another one following that, it weakens the field a little bit more. If you have nine in a row, well, there's a cumulative effect of those things on the magnetic field of the Earth where uh, it can really start to destabilize the field, and that's what we like to look for uh, when we have these, uh, these large flares that come in succession. So we're keeping a close eye on the sun, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that more, um, more next week. If you'd like to uh, see where we look at all this stuff, just go to one of your search engines and put in SOHO, S-O-H-O, and then the word LASCO, L-A-S-C-O, and that'll take you uh, to the SOHO LASCO website, which is maintained by JPL and by NASA, and uh, those are um, virtually real-time um, real imagery on the web of uh, solar satellites that are uh, peering at the sun 24 hours a day, so that's where we get that information. In any case, uh, there's another couple of uh, interesting sunspots up there, 693, 695, all of those uh, areas sort of in the middle of the disk right now, all of them uh, areas of potential extreme activity. Of course, we had an X-class flare last week that we talked about, and we've had uh, M-class flares continuously since then. Uh, so it is a little bit of a concerning situation what's happening on the sun right now. So let's uh, we'll keep an eye on that. And like I say, if you want to do it yourself, uh, send me an email for more information or go uh, uh, go to the Soho uh, Lasco sites and you can look at that imagery yourself. And and you can also learn a whole lot from those sites about how how this stuff works. So uh, that's that for the sun. The Leonid meteor. Um, uh, sky watchers in Europe and Asia. We won't be able to see this in North America particularly, but uh, in Europe and in Asia, for my listeners on the web, on uh, November 8th, there will be uh, a pretty interesting meteor shower to watch. Uh, the Earth is expected to cruise through um, an old uh, stream of dust and debris from a comet that was called Temple Tuttle. And uh, Temple Tuttle, uh, the Earth passes through the tail of Temple Tuttle, every year and when that happens we get the Leonid meteor showers and um, this particular meteor shower could uh, reach up to 100 meteors per hour uh, and if you look up in the sky and you see these sort of shooting stars that's sort of what they're talking about during a meteor shower you might see a hundred of those in an hour at least in this case uh, the reason they call these the Leonids is because, because um, from our vantage point here on earth they appear to come from the constellation Leo and so that's, of course, why they call them the Leonid asteroids or, or um, uh, the Leonid meteors. So that's going on. If you're in Europe or in Asia, uh, for the next few nights, check out the Leonids, and you should see some pretty, pretty cool things up there in the sky. Um, uh, regarding the solar activity also, uh, if, you are at the, um, uh, if you are at the northern latitudes uh, in the United States, Maine, Washington, along those lines, uh, or up in Canada, Alaska, uh, you should get to see some, uh, some pretty fantastic auroral activity as well this weekend and into the next uh, next few days as these uh, as these 
coronal mass ejections interact with the magnetic field of the Earth, and uh, although they can do some nasty things in the extreme, they can also do some very beautiful things, and that's what we that's what we see in the uh, uh, the manifestations of the aurora borealis in the north and the australis borealis in the south. So, uh, if you're lucky enough, check it out. Uh, one last thing on space weather: Venus and Jupiter. Uh, two very bright planets, actually the two brightest planets from our vantage point here on Earth. Um, they actually came very close to one another, uh, at least the way they appear in the sky just a couple days ago, but uh, they're still pretty close up there, and they're drifting apart right now. But if uh, you want to check out Venus and Jupiter in the morning, uh, tomorrow morning or this morning, I guess it is Sunday morning, uh, go out and look to the east and uh, look for the two little brightest spots in the sky, direct, pretty much directly east, and that will be Venus and Jupiter up there. And uh, it's a pretty beautiful sight right now, actually. A couple other things re- related to space weather. Uh, we always talk about the sun and its significance and uh, relativism to activity here on Earth. That includes earthquake and volcano activity. And there's a direct link between the magnetic field of the Earth and those things. And we also know that the sun has a direct influence on the magnetic field of the Earth. Therefore, by the transitive property, the sun is also directly involved with uh, geo thermic activity here on the planet. So uh, we've been talking about Mount St. Helens over the last month or so, and Helens is still going up. Scientists say that the lava dome in the crater of Mount St. Helens has risen more than 300 feet in the past nine days. The magma pushing up inside the volcano is making the lava dome grow vertically. Uh, It has grown outward only about 90 feet in places, but it's grown up 300 feet. Uh, The U.S. Geological Survey says that even though the new rock is about 1,000 degrees, it has not yet melted the crater glacier. So, uh, things still very interesting uh, up on Mount St. Helens. So, we're watching that closely, but I did want to give you an update because we've talked about it. Uh, In addition, there is a volcano uh, in Iceland, which was called Grimsvotten. And uh, Grimsvotten had a had an eruption on Thursday, November 4th, a spectacular eruption, actually, uh, which actually diverted airline flights and uh, um, kicked ash and lava and explosions all the way up to about 40,000 feet up in the air. So, uh, So, again, significant geothermic activity taking place and uh, not that these things don't happen all the time the earth is a dynamic creature and uh, there there are always uh, things happening there's always volcanism and always earthquakes and stuff but uh, um, we like to watch the frequency of these events and try to graph uh, the extremism and find out if things are normal or if they're out of the norm and uh, quite frankly volcanism over the last year actually over the last few years uh, does seem to be significantly higher than uh, than historically so uh, so that's why we watch that sort of stuff um, it is what is it 225 in the a.m. we'll be back in just a few minutes we're going to play a little music here and come back do a couple stories and be back again after that with my guest Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland from the Sirius Institute. We'll be talking about dolphins, whales, and uh, the intelligence of these incredible creatures uh, coming up in just about a half hour. In the meantime, this is Sharks from the Tragically Hip uh, from Music at Work, KOPN Radio Orbit.
Tragically Hip from Music at Work. That's a song called Sharks. We got sort of a sort of a water theme going tonight. Seeing as we're going to be talking to Dr. Heisen about dolphins and whales. And uh, actually, I'm going to sort of devote the rest of this first hour uh, to the topic of the evening because it's such an amazing thing and something that I've been interested in for a long time. Ever since I was a young kid, I've been a scuba diver. Since I was only about 13 years old, I got certified to dive when I was a pretty young fella. And I've been fascinated by the ocean and by the creatures that live in the ocean uh, for a long, long time. And uh, so I'm real pleased to, uh, to be able to talk to Dr. Heisen tonight and his associate, Paradise, who will be with him. And, uh, um, well, I'm going to take a sip of water here. Mmm, because my mouth's a little bit dry, and uh, and I got two and a half hours to to uh, to tickle your ears, so I better make sure that my throat's okay. So, in any case, here's the story. Okay, a number of years ago, my close friend Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com, a uh, a sage in his own right, turned me on to the work of a doctor in. Uh, the late 60s and the early 70s, and that gentleman's name was Dr. John Lilly. Anyway, what happened was uh, Dr. Heisen is sort of a protege of Dr. Lilly. Dr. John Lilly died in the year 2000, uh, quite, a, quite a bit of time before, uh, before I started doing this radio show. I'm always interested in uh, these, these sorts of stories about dolphins and whales, and I look for them now and again in the... Uh, in the newspapers and in the news media on the web and I happened to find a story about three weeks ago and the story was sort of written tongue-in-cheek and sort of written in, in sort of a patronizing manner but the information that was in it was important and it sort of triggered me and here I'm going to read it to you real fast so it says uh, dolphins may be able to change human DNA and this is from Puna, Hawaii. Dolphins may have the power to alter our DNA and switch our genes on and off to help us heal. That's the fishy claim of dolphin researcher Dr. Michael Heisen, who says that the mammals can generate sound and electromagnetic fields that can have a positive effect on, hum on human DNA to help treat diseases like autism, cerebral palsy, and depression. Although Heisen can't explain exactly how dolphins know which genes to turn on and off to treat humans, and he admits it's, a, it's an hypothesis, he claims dolphins have treated humans this way for thousands of years. In fact, he says a dolphin helped him heal a couple of painful dislocated vertebrae by sending sonar pulses towards him while he was, while he was swimming with the creature. I saw that story, and I recognized that uh, it sounded very familiar to the work that Dr. John Lilly had been doing uh, from 1955 to 1968, uh, where he did his initial research. He uh, terminated that research in 1968 because much of what he was doing was government-related, and uh, he became unhappy with um, the direction of the research, and he also uh, had a realization that the creatures that he was working with were sentient creatures and he determined that it was no longer within uh, within his moral scope uh, to do anything like that with them without their own volition uh, without uh, their own free will 
And as we'll learn tonight, the dolphins do exhibit free will. That's one of the things that, that we'll be talking about, how I actually ran across uh, how I actually ran across Dr. Heisen. And the crazy thing is that uh, he's actually from my hometown of Rockford, Illinois. Let's put some music on and I'll see if we can't get the mic figured out. So, hey, uh, anybody who wants those Medeski Martin and Wood tickets, uh, seeing as I'm having these other troubles, uh, you better call me now. First caller to get through at 874-5676. Give me a call and you got yourself a pair of Medeski Martin and Wood tickets for the show coming up Friday uh, at, at the Balloon Out. All right, 874-5676. Medeski Martin Wood tickets right now.
This was the greatness to behold. He was the last surviving progeny, the last one on this side of the world. He measured a half mile from tip to tail, silver and black, with powerful fins. They say he could split a mountain in two. That's how he got the Grand Canyon. Last great American whale. Last great American whale. Last great American whale. Last great American whale. Some say they saw him at the Great Lakes. Some say they saw him off of Florida. My mother said she saw him in Chinatown. But you can't always trust your mother. Off the Carolinas, the sun shines brightly in the day. The lighthouse glows ghostly there at night. The chief of a local tribe had killed the racist mayor's son. He'd been on death row since 1958. The mayor's kid was a rowdy pig. Spit on Indians and lots worse. The old chief buried a hatchet in his head. Life compared to death for him seemed worse. The tribal brothers gathered in the lighthouse to sing. They tried to conjure up a storm or rain. The harbor parted. The great whale sprang full up. It caused a huge tidal wave. The wave crushed the jail and freed the chief. The tribe let out a roar. Whites were drowned. The Browns and Reds set free. But sadly, one thing more: some local yokel member of the NRA kept a bazooka in his living room. And thinking he had the chief in his sights, threw the whale's brains out with a lead harpoon. Let's create a American whale. Last great American whale. Last great American whale. Last great American whale. Well, Americans don't care for much of anything. Land and water, the least. And animal life is low on the totem pole. With human life not worth more than infected yeast. Americans don't care too much for beauty. They'll shit in a river, dump battery acid in a stream. They'll watch dead rats wash up on the beach. Complain if they can't swim. They say things are done for the majority. Don't believe half of what you see, none of what you hear. It's like what my painter friend Donald said to me: stick a fork in their ass and turn them over. They're done. KOPN Radio Orbit, and this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to uh, that was Lou Reed, Last Great American Whale, from the uh, Greenpeace soundtrack that was called Rainbow Warriors. It came out about ten or twelve years ago, I think. Uh, in any case, 
I think I got the microphone troubles uh, figured out. Um, I switched mics, and hopefully things are working better now. For whatever reason, that one microphone always seems to give me trouble. But uh, I want to go over again real fast um, what we were talking about before, before the break. I kind of got uh, sidetracked a little bit because of the technical issue we were having with the mic. Um, but uh, we were talking about dolphins and whales, uh, cetaceans. And um, I was telling you about how, when I was a kid, I've always been interested in these incredible creatures. And uh, luckily enough, about uh, six or seven years ago, I was turned on to the work of Dr. John Lilly by a friend of mine. His name is Kent Stedman, who runs CyberspaceOrbit.com. Uh, uh, for people who are familiar with my program, you know Kent. He's a regular, regular guest here on the program. In any case, uh, Dr. Lilly uh, was a pioneer in the uh, the field of uh, dolphin communication and uh, from 1955 to 1968 did a tremendous amount of work and research uh, in that field and then uh, continued that work uh, 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 for the rest of his life basically until he died um, only a few years ago I want to say in the year 2000 in any case uh, I was lucky enough to come across Dr. Michael Heisen uh, in a real small article uh, that I read prior to the break, uh, talking about the possibility of dolphins uh, being able to affect DNA and have a positive effect on uh, illnesses and disease like cerebral palsy and autism and these sorts of things. But I was able to track down Dr. Heisen, and uh, it turns out in an, an interesting uh, twist of synchronicity that he was born in the same town that I grew up in, and he grew up uh, not far from there. Uh, we were both born in Rockford, Illinois, and... Uh, uh, and Dr. Heisen spent a significant part of his uh, early years in Winnebago, in Winnebago County uh, there. And, uh, of course, now he's in Hawaii doing some uh, incredible work and carrying on uh, in the tradition of Dr. Lilly. And uh, they have uh, some incredible things to talk to us about tonight. And uh, as I've said the whole first hour, I'm really excited in just a few minutes, Dr. Michael Heisen and uh, his associate and co-founder of the Sirius Institute, um, Paradise Newland, will both be on the air with us uh, talking to us about these extraordinary creatures. So uh, to set that up one last time uh, and to do uh, just a little bit more, there's a, there's a story here that I'll read that's called The Mystery of the Silver Rings. And I may not read the whole story, but uh, um, it's something that we can probably touch on a little bit further with our guests uh, if, they, uh, if they elect to talk about it. So in any case, it'll give you an idea <clears throat> of the, the level of mastery of their environment uh, that the dolphins have. And it, uh, it's, what, it's one of these little, in my opinion, it's a little sneak, a look behind the veil uh, because I think there are some secrets in this story um, that uh, uh, that are profound and that the dolphins have a lot of things uh, that they could actually teach us that might actually help our species. Um, in any case, here we go. In the Mystery of the Silver Rings. <clears throat> this was written by a gentleman named Don White. And uh, it goes like this. The young dolphin kicks a quick flip of her head and an undulating silver ring appears as if by magic in front of her. The ring is solid, a toroidal bubble two feet across, and yet it does not rise to the surface. It stands erect in the water like the rim of a magic mirror or the doorway to an unseen dimension. For long seconds, the dolphin regards its creation from varying aspects and angles with its vision and with its sonar. 
seemingly making a judgment, the dolphin then quickly pulls a, a, uh, a small silver donut out of the larger structure, which collapses into small bubbles. She then pushes the donut, the donut, which stays just inches ahead of her rostrum, perhaps 20 feet over a period of up to 10 seconds. Then stopping again, she regards the twisting ring for the last time, and she bites it, causing it to collapse into a thousand tiny bubbles which head, as they should, for the water surface. After a few minutes of reflection, she creates another. Now, without even reading the rest of the story, and uh, it's uh, uh, quite a bit longer, this is an astounding uh, statement that uh, that paragraph alone should uh, should should put people's flags uh, some flags up and make you make you take note of what uh, of what's happening here so uh, this isn't fantasy it's real it isn't magic it's just marvelous it is a rare dolphin behavior and we'll talk to uh, uh, Michael and Paradise about how rare it really is um, it is a rare dolphin behavior and we first saw it in the play of two baby dolphins it gives us little more insight into the superb level of control dolphins can exercise on their water environment and underscores the fact that we can still discover things about dolphins by simply watching them. There's a surprise. I first saw this behavior on one of my relatively rare trips out of the Delphus lab, the project's principal scientist Keith Martin said. Uh, two babies, Tinkerbell and Maui, had been doing this for a little while. My reaction, wow, neato. How the heck do they do that? Um, I try to get some photo and video shots of it. Yeah, it's sure cool. Uh, Ken, along with uh, Suchip Sarakos, a uh, research assistant and computer programmer, did indeed document the silver rings, although video and photos don't do the rings justice. Um, and this has made it possible to both analyze the physics behind the phenomenon and to watch the dolphins do uh, or perform this trick in slow motion. As it turned out, Small silver rings weren't the only toys the dolphins were making for themselves. Some of the creations were as large as a basketball rim, and Tinkerbell proved able to create a silver helix, spiraling perhaps 20 feet long, that would spring into life in a fraction of a second and remain stable in the water as she swam past, observing it with sonar and with vision from different angles. Then presto, she would grab a small silver ring from the helix to play with, while the rest of the helix degraded into bubbles which would belatedly remember to rise to the surface. This was a wonderful mystery to ponder. My attempts at recreating the rings in a swimming pool succeeded only in getting water up my nose, but my guesses were confirmed with better and more rigorous explanation by the fluid dynamics class of Suchi's close friend Hans Rahm at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. The silver rings, as it turns out, are air core vortex rings. Let me repeat that, air core vortex rings. And uh, vortex technology is something that we'll be talking about a little bit more on this program over the next few weeks. And it ties into uh, uh, concepts of energy uh, that, uh, uh, that certain qualified people talk about. And that's something that we'll get into uh, another time. But I think that it's relevant, and I think these things are possibly created. In any case, uh, the vortex line tends to form into a more stable form, such as a helix. When the dolphins break the line, the ends are drawn together into closed rings. Owing to the Bernoulli effect, the higher velocity fluid around the core of the vortex is at a lower pressure. Okay, I'm not going to go into the details of it, but um, in any case, the uh, researchers were trying to figure out how the dolphins are capable of, uh, of, of, of doing what they're doing. 
the energy of the water vortex is enough to keep the bubbles from rising for a reasonably long period of time on the order of 10 seconds. There also seems to be a separate mechanism for producing small rings, which a dolphin can accomplish by a quick flip of its head. There is little doubt that this is what is occurring. However, understanding the physics should not diminish our appreciation of this spontaneous act of creation by the dolphin mind. These young dolphins have detected, understood, and manipulated a subtle aspect of their environment for no reason other than play. I would add that that's not probably totally true. How do we know if it was only this play? Maybe they were trying to tell us something. Um, in any case, creation of these rings by dolphins isn't new. Far from it, the dolphins were probably blowing magnificent rings while our ancestors were hanging off tree limbs. It does seem to be a relatively rare behavior, though, uh, as it has been seen before only in specific groups of dolphins documented by Diane Rice and Jan Ostrom at Marine World. The fact that ring blowing is rare and that we have two babies doing it suggests that one baby learned it from the other, or it's innate, I would add. Uh, comments Ken Martin, whether it was a case of observational learning or one taught the other, we don't know. Uh, but it'd sure be interesting to know. Well, uh, there's a lot of things that are interesting to know about these extraordinary brothers and sisters of ours in the oceans and the seas of our planet. Of course, our planet is a big planet, and this is just Mike now talking. I'm uh, no longer quoting from uh, the Silver Ring story, but, uh, you know, 70% of our planet is covered with water, and uh, these creatures inhabit the great majority of that 70%. are capable of, uh, of uh, thriving in most of the oceans of the world. So, uh, And they've been there for a long time, and they have very large brains, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as well tonight and what that means. And... Uh, Anyway, just extraordinary creatures, so uh, stick around. There's a little bit of background we did on um, uh, the dolphins and the whales and Dr. Michael Heisen, and uh, we'll be back with uh, Dr. Heisen himself and uh, Paradise Newland in just a few minutes. Um, in the meantime, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. This is Walk on the Ocean, Toad the Wet Sprocket, back in a few minutes, uh, live from Hawaii. Uh, with Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland talking about dolphins and whales. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. We spotted the ocean at the head of the trail Where I was going so far away Somebody told me this is the place Everything's better Everything's safe Walk on the ocean
Sprocket on KOPN Radio Orbit. This is Radio Orbit, and you are listening to KOPN 89.5, Mid-Missouri Source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio, and it's your imagination station, Radio Orbit, KOPN. And uh, it is 3 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, November 9th. And uh, we're going to get right to my guests here. My, uh, my guest tonight, uh, I have two guests on the line. My first guest is Dr. Michael Heisen. Dr. Heisen is a P, uh, Ph.D. marine biologist whose resume is uh, far too long for me to read right now. It would take up most of the show probably. But uh, Dr. Heisen's career includes an amazing list of accomplishments and experiences uh, from botany to neurology to linguistics to space travel. He's uh, worked for uh, NASA and JPL and Bell Labs and uh, done all kinds of different things. Uh, but now, uh, for quite a while now, he's been back doing the work that has been his first love, and that is uh, working with dolphins. Uh, in 1990, Dr. Heisen and our next guest, who is also on the line with us, uh, and her name is Paradise Newland, um, uh, the, uh, they have an amazing story. The two of them uh, launched the Sirius Institute along with a dolphin named Swimmer, and uh, Paradise has an amazing story of her own, which we're going to hear tonight, uh, but she is a former... TV and video producer, a corporate executive in that world for quite a while who uh, sort of changed her life and devoted her, her life to these extraordinary creatures uh, some, some 20 years ago. And uh, she's the co-founder, as I said before, of the Sirius Institute. Uh, she's the founder of Camp Paradise, which is a uh, Waldorf-based uh, learning system. And also Planet Puna, uh, planetpuna.com, which we'll reference tonight, um, in which uh, uh, a tremendous amount of this, avail uh, this uh, information is available. Uh, so I will, before I bring them on real fast here, let's uh, put, just put out that website address, www.planetpuna.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-P-U-N-A.com. And uh, without further delay, Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland, welcome to Radio Orbit. Thank you very much for being here with us tonight. Aloha. <laughs> Aloha. Aloha. Very Aloha. good. Aloha. Thank you for inviting us. You're, you're very welcome, and uh, th thanks for uh, staying up a little bit later than typical, probably, even though you're a few hours behind us here. Well, actually, um, your time is more like our usual almost getting to bedtime. Is that right? Yeah, we're kind of night people. Well, I'm, ki I'm kind of a night owl myself. That's why I, uh, that, that's why I actually enjoy this time slot. Uh, people say, why do you do radio at, uh, from 2 to 5 in the morning? But it's actually it's a pretty interesting group of people that are up listening at this time, mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and, and, I, and I happen to like it uh, myself. So anyway, um, it's great to have you guys, and uh, I want to mention a couple things right up front. Uh, first of all, I want to give out um, Jeff Rentz's website, uh, where we have some of the imagery located that people can reference. Well, <clears throat> perhaps better, there's a link off of um, Planet Puna for the Rentz show. Okay. And it goes okay. to pictures. All right, great. So um, uh, if, uh, if people just go to planetpuna.com, is it right there on the front page? Yes, it should be like the first link down on the uh, right. 
Okay, great. So um, uh, if you go to planetpuna.com, uh, just scroll down, look at, look to your right, and look for the, for the uh, for the link that mentions Jeff Rents's program. Uh, Dr. Heisen and Paradise were on Jeff's program just a few weeks ago, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, Jeff's a friend of mine, and um, I'm sure he will have no problem with us uh, borrowing a little bit of his bandwidth to have uh, people go over there and look at those images. Uh, so go to Planet Puna, and then uh, you can link up to the imagery over on Jeff's site from there. Um, also. Uh, I have to uh, do a quick apology up front. I had downloaded um, the uh, samples from the CD, which is called uh, Humpbacks and Dolphins Sing, which has been created by uh, uh, the people here at the Sirius Institute. And for whatever reason, when I got to the station, I was not able to, uh, the format uh, would not work with my machinery here. So... Uh, unfortunately, I won't be able to play any clips from that, but we can talk about it, and, uh, and I've got some other interesting stuff in sort of a similar vein that we'll play, but, uh, but we'll certainly uh, let people know that that's available, and maybe we can talk a little bit about it later on, you guys. Great. Okay. Um, well, where should we start? Maybe we could do a little bit of background um, uh, just to sort of uh, uh, frame this out a little bit and give people a little, a little uh, uh, perspective of how this uh, work that you guys are doing, how it sort of began, and how you got where you are, and um, uh, I don't know, just give us a little bit of uh, a little bit of background on how on, on how things got to be where they are. Um, all right. Um, well, for me, I was living in uh, Winnebago, Illinois, and uh, studying things like bats uh, who use sonar, and I ran across John Lilly's book called Man and Dolphin when I was about twelve or thirteen. And uh, long story short, my brother got a job training dolphins in Texas, and I got to help him for the summer. So I got to basically live with him for a summer. And that was such a marvelous um, experience that I went on to study biology and ended up at the University of Miami. And uh, skipping a, a lot ahead, years later, after some aerospace work that I did, I wanted to get back to the dolphins and eventually met Paradise Newland at John Lilly's 75th birthday party oh, wow. and she had already founded the Sirius Institute okay. and many of her goals were matching mine so we came, got together and made the uh, Institute a real going concern. Okay, wonderful. And, and, uh, and Paradise, uh, a little bit about your own background, how were, how, what, what prompted you originally to, uh, to found that Institute? Well, um, as a TV producer and talk show host of my own weekly show for five years in Vancouver, I had the opportunity to meet um, some dolphin people who would come through town and call in and see if I would interview them. And through some of these connections, I had the opportunity to meet the Lilies, Tony and John Lilly. Sure. And uh, we became really fast friends and colleagues and... I was um, a producer, so I was working on creating a three-piece series on interspecies communications, underwater birth, and uh, the flotation tank, all of which were very important and related to the Lily's work. Okay. And so we started collaborating, and I started producing some of these um, pieces with their help and doing interviews with them and like that. And then after I got to swim with Joan Rosie, though, I was invited to swim with their dolphins in Florida, March of 85, and uh, I got to swim with it. It was just the most amazing experience. It totally changed my life. <laughs> and from there, I went back to Vancouver and incorporated the Sirius Connection, which was to be a vehicle for all of my 
dreams and visions and intentions about what I could do to um, talk about them, to share about them with the world. Films, books, um, pod homes, dolphin birthing centers, all these kinds of things were inspired profoundly through that one encounter with them. So from there, um, I wrote a screenplay outline, and it was about a lady who was pregnant and swimming with the dolphins all the time and doing telepathy experiments with them as part of her work in her research institute. And sometime after that, uh, Michael showed up. It became more real because he was a real researcher in that sense with his Ph.D. in neurobiology and his other backgrounds. And we decided we had a lot in common in terms of our love of the dolphins, our love of the planet and children and the desires we had mm. to see the planet thrive. We felt it would be a good partnership. So we got it up on running with a proposal to the Grateful Dead to come play music with the dolphins and us. Mm-hmm. And we call that one the interspecies concert. It turns out some of their communication is quite musical. They use musical phrases. They understand musical keys. They sing in a special scale and so on. So we propose to the Grateful Dead that we do a, a proper concert with them. Incredible. When was, when, when was that, you guys? Um, it was September 1990. 1990. September 17th, I believe, 1990. September 1990. <laughs> we finished it. We put it to bed, and we made a personal letter to all the Grateful Dead band members. And sent it out with our proposal and our mission statement and our plans for the Serious Institute. Wow, that is so cool. I, I actually, I'm on an email list of uh, John Perry Barlow's. Oh yeah, and uh, he's uh, he's still still quite an interesting fellow, and still he's, you know he's such a great writer. He's written some fantastic things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, wow! Again, how these uh, how these uh, how these circles connect? It's amazing, you know. Well, the, the Grateful Dead decided they were a bit busy to do that project, right. so we put the uh, the report up on the internet on a on a email exchange list called Bix, mm-hmm. right information exchange long ago, and this wonderful fellow Jim Kent. Uh, decided to give us a small grant that got us to Hawaii and got us all started. So it all worked. Wow, fantastic. What a great story. And uh, and the work uh, that you're doing there um, continues, and uh, we're going to be talking about that tonight. So um, maybe we could... Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about what the, what the Sirius Institute... Um, what your goals are, in other words, what, what what you're actually trying to accomplish there, and then maybe we can talk about where we are along the uh, along the timeline and what you really have accomplished and what we know, and then we can really start to talk about um, the uh, uh, our friends, the dolphins themselves, maybe. So, well, first, um, I'd like to thank you for that really wonderful and insightful um, opening you gave at the last part of the last hour and the opening to this part of this hour. Uh, you really have such a passion for it. And from there, you understand a lot about where we're coming from. Well, There's such a passion for what we're doing. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting because I, I don't know if you were on the air when I was telling the story, but I, I, I've, I've, I began scuba diving when I was pretty young, about 13 years of age. And um, I was lucky enough as a relatively young man uh, to get a chance to go and dive in... Uh, off the reef, the barrier reef, the northern part of the Great Barrier Reef in uh, off the coast of uh, uh, eastern Australia. And um, I'll tell you what, I was in the water. I had the opportunity to be in the water with, uh, w- with some wild dolphins. And I, although I, I didn't actually experience underwater uh, any uh, connection or uh, experience with whales, I did with the dolphins. And it was 
immediately apparent um, to me, it becomes immediately obvious that there's something significant going on there um, and, and to me it was just almost, it was self-evident and I can't I'm not a uh, I'm not a physicist and I'm not a biologist I happen to uh, ha- have a, a little bit of knowledge about a lot of things but um, but I can tell you that in my heart I knew that this was um, somebody <laughs> see, I, I actually use a personal term you know it was like a, a person and I, and I and I and I could feel it and I've kind of always known that these creatures are there and they're very similar to us and um, it would be amazing if we could communicate with them. Well, in a nutshell, you kind of described our sentiments because um, my first personal encounter with them was in St. Augustine, Florida and I had just seen a number of them perform at a show for the first time and I was in my 20s at the time and it completely captivated me and excited me and touched something very familiar in me Hmm. but it's just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen and from there um, we went around and went to the holding pens and there were three of them were in a pen playing catch with each other with a ball (laughs) I thought wow this is just amazing just amazing they're playing catch with each other because I mean we can play fetch with a dog right or whatever Um, but did you ever see them playing ball with each other? You know what I mean? Right. So when I saw them playing ball with each other, it's like, wow, that's amazing. And then they threw the ball to me, and they played ball with me. Incredible. They played catch with me. And when they did that, something very unique happened. I felt like they knew who I was. Right. I felt somehow they knew me. Like, how could they know who I am? But the feeling was very real, and it just changed my life because... I just felt like there was some kind of inner connection that was beyond anything I had really experienced or if I had before I could articulate what it was. And when I felt it, part of me felt like I had come home. Wow. Yeah. That um, somehow there was a life beyond what I could see and feel and touch. Somewhere there was a life that could reach in and remind me that there was other life like that. And it was the dolphins who did this, and, you know, it changed my life. <laughs> you know, um, if I could add one more thing, what, what, the, the other thing that, that, that became, that really stuck out to me when I had my own experience um, with the dolphins was that, first of all, they're enormous creatures, um, n- n- not, not to mention uh, the orcas, but, but just, you know, uh, uh, your typical bottlenose dolphin are pretty big animals and it's also very and, and they have this incredible mastery of their environment like I was talking about before but I guess it's their benevolence that I'm saying that was obvious to me because if these creatures wanted to do harm uh, they're perfectly capable of defending themselves they have basically no enemies as far as I know I know that there are a few cases of maybe orcas uh, eating a small dolphin or something I think but I'm, I, I don't know you guys would have to be, you're more the authorities on that than me but in any case I guess uh, I'm saying when, when these animals are in captivity it's almost like they allow themselves to be captured especially the orcas because how because they're such incredibly uh, skillful creatures if they wanted to they could probably just have their way and be gone or, or, or really harm somebody if they wanted to yes well we rather than calling them captive dolphins although that's what humans think they're doing to them huh. uh, a long time ago we came to understand that they're what we call service dolphins huh. that in fact they volunteer in some ways even if it's in such a way as 
being where the capture is taking place. There's some level of, if they're as conscious as we um, believe and feel they are, then they put themselves where they are just like we do. Mm-hmm. You know, we go downtown one day on this route instead of taking the route that we usually take and something changes because of that. Well, they're conscious beings. Mm-hmm. So when they come into service in situations like this, um, they're coming to learn about us. They're coming to help us. They're coming to heal um, heal us and also to find mm-hmm. out more about us, I feel. Right, right. So they have a curiosity. Probably yeah, similar I think they have, ours. like, sociologist dolphins, huh. you know, and psychiatrist dolphins. And right. Michael will say the doctor dolphins yeah, and the, the doctor dolphins. dolphins. The, MD, the MDs, the medical dolphins. <laughs> well, you know, that, that that's another thing that sort of strikes with me because I've... I've I, I guess with the orca in particular, I always used to think that they were sort of emissaries because I couldn't think of any other reason why they would um, why they would allow themselves, obviously, to be put in that situation. So I kind of have always thought, I wonder if they're here as sort of uh, uh, ambassadors of sorts or something like that. Yeah. I think so. When Joe and Rosie were captured, the rest of the pod went on, and while they were straightening out the net on the boat... Uh, Joe and Rosie just hung around the boat and then almost swam into the net. Dr. Heisen, tell us who Joe and Rosie are. Oh, um, let's see. Uh, John Lilly did a lot of research through the Communication Research Institute up until about 1968. Okay. And about 1978, he started another project called the Janus Project, which mm-hmm. is going to be a two-way computer interface between the humans and the dolphins. So they put, got two dolphins uh, to work with, Joe and Rosie, and they worked in... Uh, Marine World Africa USA in Redwood City, California, and our our partner Roberta Goodman ran that uh, operation for uh, several months. Okay. So um, anyway, that's that was Joe and Rosie, and then they were later uh, released in um, South Carolina, I believe, and uh, conditioned or, or you know readapted to the sea and turned loose. Mm-hmm. As as John Lilly had agreed with them before he even did the project. Amazing. Yeah, John John came up with something called what the Cetacean, what was it Bill of Rights, Michael? Say again. The Cetacean Bill of Rights. Oh yes, yes. Uh, yeah, he came up with uh, the uh, treatment of cetaceans under human law, where, which basically argued that because of their intelligence, sentience, culture. Uh, long-term inhabitation of the planet being like the oldest indigenous races of the planet, if you will, mm-hmm. that they were certainly entitled to full recognition under human law and uh, entitled to rights uh, at least equal to human beings. Certainly, and why not? Yeah. At that time, he called the effort the Cetacean Nation, and uh, we now have uh, Paradise's concept called the Cetacean Commonwealth which is the commonwealth of the cetacea nations of all the species. All right. Well, I couldn't agree more, and I think that that's something that, uh, uh, that, that we should all be able to agree with, especially uh, after people... You know, it's all about education and learning. I mean, uh, uh, when, when people are exposed to this information, uh, it's, it usually has a tremendous effect on them. The problem is getting the information to the people to, in order to... Uh, uh, to bring on that effect, uh, but certainly when people are exposed to 
the the capabilities and and the the wonders of these creatures they really do turn on i've seen it to, to many people that just when i t- just in the last uh, the last couple of weeks when i've been talking to people around the station here you know about uh, about this particular program i've been very excited about it and i've been telling people about it and just t- telling the stories uh, you know paradise telling your particular story of which i don't know in detail i just kind of told a little bit about uh, how your second son was born in that story mm-hmm. and people were amazed by it you know <laughs> yeah it's pretty amazing <laughs> yeah and they want to know more and 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 you know and they're, and they're very interested but it's just uh you know because of the way that information is typically disseminated in uh in in the world these days it's just off the radar no pun intended you know right it's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny well, uh, i will admit that many of the things sound far out unless you have lived them um, Pliny the Elder said about one of the dolphin stories that I have come across the tale that were it except that it is vouched for by people I trust I would have called it a fable mm-hmm. and he, he went on to tell about the dolphins taking kids to school and things like that oh my gosh in uh, ancient Greece yeah there's, uh, there's quite a bit of writing that Aristotle did if I remember correctly about dolphins Yes, Lily was very impressed by Aristotle's work. He mentions the uh, sounds in air made by the dolphins. Right, that, it's out, that it actually sounds similar to human, I think, right? Yes, and he said that they sounded like the speech of humans. Huh. And, uh, well, actually, one of the dolphins where Roberta worked up at that um, place in San Francisco, when she came in to see them, um, it's very clear, someone had recorded it, the dolphin saying, Roberta! <laughs> like three times or four times, it's calling her name. Roberta! Yeah. Amazing. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, some people might be familiar with that film that was done, I think, in the 70s. It was called The Day of the Dolphin. And it was uh, George C. Scott, and it was sort of a nefarious film about uh, uh, government CIA types uh, conditioning dolphins to go uh, perform uh, black ops and things like that, basically. Um, but in any case, there was there was some significant parts of that film I thought that sort of again were a little peek behind the curtain of uh, of what was really going on maybe at the time. Well, actually, Joe and Rosie came to the Human Dolphin Foundation as a direct result of that film, which um, less than fairly and accurately represented Dr. Lilly's work or intention. So as a little um, thank you and mea culpa, perhaps, Joe and Rosie um, from that studio, forgive me, um, offered the money and the support to help bring these two dolphins into the uh, Human Dolphin Foundation. Wow. Uh, uh, John often said that the most important conclusion he had reached after working with the dolphins was that they were ethical beings, that they put humans in a special class, and always treated us well. And that to have someone, in, like in the CIA-type movies, blow someone up, using the dolphins he thought was a complete reversal of his, what he found so he sued them about it good <laughs> I wonder if he was successful um, he lost the suit but uh, Joseph Levine and his wife were, were so impressed by his defense of his ideas that they helped him start the Janus project great well good then some good came out of it so alright well um, let's see what do I want to talk about a little bit um you know, 
because some of this, let's let's talk let's talk a little bit about physiology a little bit, Dr. Heisen, so we can so we can at least um, for the people who are saying now oh, this sounds kind of nuts, let's talk about the brain of the dolphin a little bit and and why we why we think uh, physiologically um, and evolutionarily that, that that there's good evidence that these uh, that some of the things we're saying might be might be real valid. Well. Um a lot of this work was done by uh, John Lilly and Peter Morgain and others, and what they found was that the dolphins have a brain that's larger than the human beings and of equal complexity, and that uh, there are parts of the brain that are larger in the dolphin, and they correspond to what we call the association cortex, where you, we associate thinking, personality, creativity, that sort of thing. Right. So we're so we're talking about the 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 what. What we would comparatively call maybe the neocortex and the frontal lobe area of the brain, the most the most recent evolutionary advancements of our brain. That's correct. Okay. And the dolphin has just the just the bottlenose dolphin has something like forty percent more association cortex. Wow. And then the series goes on from there. The orca has about three times our brain size, and the sperm whale about six times our brain size, and all of the expansion is in the neocortex. Now that, that 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 alone, for people who, you know, who are familiar with that sort of stuff, that alone should be uh, a pretty earth-shaking piece of information. Yes. Uh, when Lily first came out with that, the Russians decided to stop killing dolphins because they were sentient beings based on his work. So they listened. Although interestingly, it was quite some time uh, before they actually stopped the whaling. Realm. Right, Michael? Yes, that's true. Still, they were still doing whaling during the um, uh, during the moratorium. Are we still there? Yep, yep. You got you guys are here, and uh, yeah, uh, it's tough. It's tough to stop the economic engine. You know what I mean? And uh, well, but what if there was an even bigger and better economic engine that would come about through their preservation instead? I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, it's uh, it's. A, it's a disease of short short sightedness, among other things. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, gosh, I don't know. Um, we could talk a long time about why things aren't recognized or, or why they don't happen. But um, um, I don't know. It's uh, it's the way it is, and so we're just going to keep trying to to, uh, to to show the good side of all this stuff. I think paradise, you know. Yes. Well, that's partly and largely what our work is about is um, showing the good part of it. That's uh, why the Cetacean Commonwealth was created was so that humans could get together with, I love how you said it earlier, the brothers and the sisters of the sea, in one voice, with one voice, to secure their preservation and their well-being. Oops, we seem to have some technical difficulties here. Mm, yeah, it just cleared up, I think. Are you okay there? Is good? Yes. Oh, yeah, that's good, Michael. Okay, I think we're okay now. Okay. <coughs> Go on, you were talking about uh, the sort of... Uh, um, kindred relationship that we have with uh, with these sort of our peers in the oceans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's well, being very kind calling yeah, them our peers. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't call them our peers. <laughs> well, yeah. cousins for sure. <laughs> calling cousins, swimming cousins. <laughs> Michael has a really great description of what we are like in the Oh, water. yes, yes. Um, uh, basically, the dolphins have had brains larger than ours uh, for at least 15 million years, maybe as much as 30. My gosh. And uh, that's maybe three to four times our whole evolutionary history. Right. And so, um, 
they can also dive to a thousand feet, jump 25 feet out of the water, and so forth. So that um, when you're in the water with the dolphin, um, I am the one. If I'm in the water with the dolphin, I'm the one who can hardly swim, hardly see, hardly hear. Right. Has a smaller brain and a shorter evolutionary history. Right. It's very humbling. Yep, no question about it. And you know, uh, the the fact that that they've been around for so long. One of the things that fascinates me that I wanted to ask you now is as good a time as any. Um, I'm very interested in uh, in the history of our planet. And I think that there are a lot of things in the history of our planet that um, that we don't fully understand. And I think that uh, it's a possibility, at least, that the Cetacea um, know a lot about that history. One would say that they know virtually everything about that history, um, say at least from 30 million years to current times. Well, only 30 million years, come on. Which is pretty good enough for me. Yeah, I know if it goes back much farther than that. Well, I'm now? sure they had some way of accessing information like that beforehand. Right. But at least um, one of my personal longings was to be able to find out more about the history of our world and our place in the universe and in a bigger scheme of things. And what about sentient life here and elsewhere? Right. Who would know better than they right. after being here and seeing so much and the world's ocean, 70% of our world's surface for all that time and keeping that information amongst them. Um, of course, I'd like to crack that Rosetta Stone. I'd like to open that Rosetta Stone. We all right, have well, a way to do that with, with the music and the communication interfaces we're working on. All right, we well, can eventually complete John Lilly's work and have full objective communication. All right, well, I think you guys, that's a good place to take a little break here. Um, we will, uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes with Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland. We're talking about dolphins and whales and uh, the intelligence that they exhibit and uh, possibilities of communication with them. We'll be talking a little bit more about music and about healing and uh, lots of just extraordinary things. And so uh, stick around, you guys. We're going to play a little music here. We'll be back in about five minutes. And uh, um, it's 3.30, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. This is Seal with Deep Water. Yeah. 
was Seal from his uh, debut CD. I don't know when it was, maybe 1992, 93, something like that. That was a song called Deep Water. And uh, speaking of deep water, we've got Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland on the line here live from Hilo, Hawaii. And uh, uh, Dr. Heisen and Ms. Newland run the Sirius Institute. They also run a website called Planet Puna. P-L-A-N-E-T-P-U-N-A.com. And uh, they are doing tremendous work out there in Hawaii with dolphins and uh, cetacea. And we've been talking for the last half hour. We've got them with us for at least another hour. And uh, we're going to get right back to it. Uh, Do I have you guys still here on the line? Yes. Yes. All right, wonderful. Um, Paradise, we were talking a little bit before the before the break there about the Sirius Institute and sort of about your charter and what your uh, what your goals and objectives are there. Why don't we talk a little bit more about that about we're tra- about what we're trying to get accomplished? Well, when um, we started this up and made it more official, one of the thoughts that came was that we're here to dolphinize the planet. And one might wonder, well, what does that really mean? Well, in years of studying them and their social structure and their consciousness and their way of being with each other and everything, we felt, I feel, we felt that um, this is a good thing to emulate, you know, to be dolphin-like, to activate or to be in touch with and, and live those parts of us that are like the dolphins. Well, hey, let me, let me jump in real fast. Um, let us know a little bit. Tell us a little bit about um, dolphins and about their social structure and if they have a hierarchy. Do they have, uh, you know, relationships and family and a oh, social yeah. structure? Yeah. They have a well, very close tie. Right, and I, and I realize that, you guys, but I want my listeners to understand this stuff. A lot of people don't know some of this stuff. And let, t- talk a little bit about, about how, how intense the, the, uh, the individual bonds between these animals are. Well, let's just say this. Dolphins are conscious breathers. What this means is that every time they breathe, they have to be awake in some sense to take a breath. Um, Because of this, they travel usually twos or pods or any numbers. Should something happen to one, there's at least one other to help them stay afloat to breathe. Amazing. They actually need each other to stay alive. So humans ultimately need each other to stay alive. And um, when we recognize this and when we um, get closer to each other, when we get more intimate emotionally with each other, then we have some small sense of what it's like to be a dolphin in a pod, to be really close to those around you, to love your children, to love your aunties and your uncles. To have a pod is to, to be part of a pod is to be part of something bigger than yourself that is there for you always, that supports you completely, and uh, to whom you are so integral. You are such an integral part of it. Um, We feel that humans are innately like this as well. And thus we have our Living on Pod project, where we get to practice this as humans. What is it like? What does it mean to be close to each other, to work together, to share child-rearing in different ways, to to be creative with each other, to share life, but in a more fun and meaningful kind of way. Becoming a human has been kind of difficult for us lately. Um, All these things going on and about our children in particular and what kind of world they're growing up in, but Mm -hmm. we can bring those 
things, those good things back into our lives by living it. Wow, nicely, nicely said. Nicely we, said. I've learned a lot by watching the dolphins. They, um, besides being conscious breathers, they uh, are touching all the time. Mm-hmm. They like to swim in groups. They swim in uh, close formations. Uh, they do amazing acrobatics underwater. They have such tremendous control when they're in the water. Yeah, and there are usually hierarchies. Uh, generally, the oldest and largest of the dolphin tends to be the uh, leader, whether male or female. Okay. And they do have their spats now and again. But can, as you said earlier, compared to the awesome power they could address if they wanted to, uh, they're very gentle with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, their, uh, their sonar, for example, is, could be lethal if they wished it to be. So one way I've I've characterized that as a metaphor is that they have the Second Amendment built into their heads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't take this, it away from them. So. This has led to an incredibly uh, cooperative and uh, gentle culture. Mm-mm. Yeah, you know, that's another thing we were talking about before, about the uh, historically uh, in the archaeological record record of the paleontological record you know we talk about these creatures being around for some 30 million years i i i wonder if you know it's it's apparent again self-evident that they have worked out uh any difficulties pretty much between their own species you know uh whereas the human beings certainly haven't worked out most of our or a lot of our differences between our own species and i wonder if they went through a time (laughs) you know uh, like that when they actually had to resolve differences among themselves and now because they're further along the line than we are uh, you know we see what we see what do you any 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 opinion That's on a good that question I wonder about that myself um, part of me feels that they were more inclined this way in the first place it could be easy to presume that there are some species that are just gentle from the beginning Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. humans, if birthed correctly, if gestated well and um, raised well, I wonder how much of this aggression, this war stuff would really happen. Yep, again. Personally, I... um, you know, and all the dolphins are water birth babies. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Well, in, in, the early, in the early Darwinian view, everything was red in, in tooth and claw, like Tennyson. Okay. And there was the survival of the fittest and the battle for survival and all that. And now when you really look at ecosystems, they're cooperative. Anything that's parasitic goes toward being a symbiote, something right. that's mutually beneficial. Right. And uh, in human societies as well, the more anthropology and archaeology we've, we've learned, the more cooperative and, and close-knit the human societies look. Hmm. So uh, a lot of this aggression stuff is uh, very much... Uh, societally induced. Yeah, no question about it. I think um, we're both familiar with the work of Joseph Chilton Pierce. Oh, uh, precisely one of our um, inspirations. Yeah, Joe's an amazing man, uh, and I, I I interviewed him a few weeks ago. Him and I are friends, and uh, uh, he has been a tremendous influence on me. Um, and this is relevant to our conversation, so I don't mind talking about Joe for a minute. Uh, because of the work that he's done uh, on the neurology and the, and, and mm-hmm. the development, the, the, the way the brain actually does develop uh, in, in a small child, and I'm sure it's very similar in a dolphin. Um, 
but yeah, like you were saying earlier, Paradise, the the uh, the effect the effect of technological birth and television and uh, lots of other things are just an assault on the neurology of a small mm-hmm. brain, and it's uh, what we're literally seeing. I think is developmental disabilities among many of these children, um, uh, as opposed to just bad kids, you know. Oh yes. Well, when there's trauma to the brain, people who work in um, neuro, you know, neurology, when there's trauma to the brain through an accident or injury or something like that, one of the things that happens is the person's behavior is strange and weird and chaotic and agitated. Mm-hmm. And I would say that describes a lot of the kids that we're treating with ADD and ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Where does that trauma come from? How did we all of a sudden have so many kids diagnosed like this when before in earlier days um, when there was more home birth or midwife birth, there were very low rates. I mean, who would even think to look at something and call it that anyway? Right, right. Yeah, definitely uh, de- definitely a connection there. And the... And the um the the water birth uh, idea is something that we'll talk about. I think maybe at the top of the hour, when we after we finish this segment, we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, um, maybe paradise. Maybe you can actually tell your story. Um, I'd love to actually hear you tell the story about um, when you had your second son, and you can maybe tell us what happened then. But we'll do that okay. at, the top, at the top of the hour. In the meantime, um, let's continue to talk. Hey, Dr. Heisen, you actually reminded me of something. Um, when you were talking about the sonar uh, that the yep. dolphins could use if they wanted to, you said they could use it uh, malevolently if they, if they so decided. Yes. You know, um, if you would, I'd like you to address the idea of technology. Um, we, we tend to think as humans, we tend to think of technology as uh, something that's physical, a machine or a device that we have to build, and um, th- that's not always the case. For example, um, the dolphins and the, and the whales, even though they don't have thumbs uh, and they don't have hands, it seems to me at least that they kind of have the ability to sort of use sound as hands. Yeah. That, 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 that piece that we talked about, the silver rings, sort of alludes to that. But uh, yeah, it, it's, ab- it's absolutely great demonstration. Okay, yeah, and, and maybe you could address that a little bit, because to me that is technology. Even though it might be a biological technology, it is bio- it's technology nonetheless and capable of doing probably tremendous things. Y- yes, I agree with you. Uh, the metaphor I've been using thinking about this, again, the early Darwinists felt that you needed a hand to have a large brain. Well, that's obviously false because they have a very large brain and they're, they're very capable of using it. Right. And this, they have a very complex technology built into their body. You're right. So rather than building it uh, externally, they have it embodied. And their sonar, for example, they can make four very complex sounds all at once, all different, simultaneously at uh, south power levels up to about a horsepower and um, out with frequencies up to at least 200, 300 kilohertz and some of the Russian work talks about a million cycles per second possible. Wow. So over distance, when we talk about these sounds and things over distance, let's talk a little bit more about the communication that they exhibit between one another um, before we talk about communication between us and them. They're, they're capable of communicating uh, uh, between one another over great distances, I'm guessing. Yes. Um, the calculations on the dolphins themselves suggest they can easily communicate over about 40 miles. And wow. they have done some calculations on the humpbacks, which are much louder, and they're down about 1,000 feet in what's called the sound channel. Mm-hmm. 
and they calculated that a humpback should be able to talk to another humpback 12,000 miles away. So basically they have global communication. My gosh. Plus they can be heard out in space. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, it turns out, we'll get into this a bit later, but uh, there's indication that things like the sperm whales can broadcast in the radio, and we have been told at least by one informant that this, this was picked up by satellite. So, well, uh, you know, um, that's incredible. My God. So they uh, may actually have radio communication. We've yet to really uh, tell explore that, that, but it's a possibility. Well, you know, there's a uh, there's actually an art project, and 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 uh, don't uh, don't press me on the details, but I ran across it maybe a couple years ago, and it's called Space Flight Dolphin. Oh wow! What is that? Uh, I don't know, <laughs> but do a do a. Uh, do a web search on it. It's called Space Flight Dolphin, and it has to do with uh, ET communication. But it was primarily an art project that was funded by, uh, I don't know if it was funded by NASA or somebody, but, and again, I'm, I apologize because uh, you just made me think of it, but it's something that you guys should probably take a look at. It's called Space Flight Dolphin. I know that. Um, That's great. We'll look it up. Yeah, so check it out. Anyway, um, Okay, so they have the ability certainly to communicate over great distances, uh, possibly in the radio wave spectrum, which is just an astounding uh, statement again. Um, you know, speaking of extraterrestrial, I've always thought about, you know, scuba diving and being underwater as about as close to we could be, a, a, as close as we could come on this planet to being on another. And, oh, yes. You know, be, because, we, you know, you have... Basically, uh, you don't have gravity. You have this different medium of which you move through. And so the, 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 the dolphins and the whales are sort of E.T. right here, you know? Yes. By the, by the strict definition, extraterrestrial means beyond the Earth. Right. And they are. They're in the water. There you go. Yeah. So they're E.T.'s. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and uh, interestingly enough, they, they, they could probably uh, give us quite a bit of insight into communicating with, uh, with other, uh, other biological entities, you know? So who knows? Who knows? But uh, we're going to find out, and I think we're going to find out uh, hopefully pretty soon with the work that you guys are doing. If we can get, uh, uh, if we can keep people supporting uh, uh, the the organizations like the Sirius Institute and and uh, folks like Dr. Heisen and Paradise here, um, if we can continue to. Uh, to give them the tools that they need to do this research, we can, we can change things. So I hope people that are listening to this program right now understand the significance of the stuff that we're talking about. Um, this is, you know, we, we, we just got through the elections, and uh, regardless of which way you uh, position yourself politically, to me anymore, that stuff is a circus sideshow. Uh, and, and, and there's so much uh, other stuff going on. Uh, this particular topic that we're talking about tonight being one of those um, that uh, are, are literally paradigm changing in their, uh, in their potentials and these are the things that we need to be talking about. These are the things that we need to putting, be putting our efforts into and, uh, and, and I, I just think it's so important. So again, real glad to have you guys here. I get Thank you. All right. Well, um, let's see. What else did I have on my list here? Well, we do have another part of our mission statement, and Mike was going to address that. Okay, yeah. all right. We're dolphinizing the planet and... Humanizing space. All right, well, let's talk, we've been talking about space a little bit, so that's a good, good, good segue. What, 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 do we, what do we mean by that? 
Well, um, for whatever reason, I've always been interested in space. I grew up watching the um, Mercury and Apollo flights, mm -hmm. and I uh, eventually saw Saturn V take off from three miles away at night. <laughs> so I was imprinted on all this. And uh, for about 15 years, I worked with uh, some private rocket companies and with Jet Propulsion Labs doing my best to get to orbit. And uh, I held a space colony conference, which is available on Planet Puna, uh, uh, at Caltech in 1978 and most of the major people interested in the space colonies came to the conference and I was uh, greatly inspired so I decided it was time to go to orbit Wow! so um, long story short I did end up uh, flying zero-g parabolas I ended up being a research director to a private rocket company I worked on a number of projects having to do with robotics and teleoperation and things like that so when we formed the Sirius Institute, I still have that interest. So my ultimate goal would be that uh, we help solve the problems of this planet by becoming spacefaring. And then eventually, when we have all this sorted out, we can go to the space together with the dolphins. That's my personal dream. Wow. I think they would be happy there. I think they would be pre-adapted to three-dimensional weightless environments. Ah, yeah, they certainly don't have a problem with zero-g, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hmm. Interesting. And so my fantasy on that would be they would make great navigators. Huh. Wow, the potentials are unlimited. <laughs> so the potentials are unlimited. And, uh, well, in order to get there, we've got to talk to them first. We've got to communicate with them first. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So um, let's, uh, let's talk for this last uh, seven or eight minutes about communicativeness between humans and dolphins and and maybe you could give a little bit bit of history again uh, just to maybe give a little bit of of how far along dr lily had gotten and um and then maybe tell us a little bit of where where you guys are now and and then and then of course uh we'll talk about where where it's going and, and this some of these new projects here so okay um let's see um, about 1965 to 68 john lily had communication research institute in florida right they had a flooded house in the Virgin Islands. They had dolphins in the Coconut Grove Bank Vault doing <laughs> sound studies and so forth. Okay. And when he found that they were imitating his speech in the lab, except that at higher frequencies and speeds, he realized they were imitating English. So he deliberately began teaching them English. And the fellow that did a lot of that work was my professor, Hank Truby. I worked with him for 12 years. And Hank was with uh, John's projects for about 17 years. So Dr. Lilly figured out that the dolphins were imitating human speech, but it was at a sped-up rate. So what did he do? He slowed down yes, the recording. Yeah, he started out by, by uh, slowing down the tapes that would slow down the speed and the frequency, and then they could hear it. <sighs> and then when they deliberately started conditioning the dolphins to emit these sounds in the air, they found that the dolphins did their best to go to the lowest speed and the lowest frequency they could to match us. Wow. And he did that for several years, and the dolphin Elvar was very good at it. And he could he could repeat phrases, and they understood things like when you said, no, no, that was wrong, and started over. They understood somehow that the no, no, that was wrong was hardly anything they should pay attention to. They were conversational, politely going back and forth, and so on. Amazing. And um, um, that's when he learned that they were linguistic, and so on. If you gave them a uh, sound channel between two dolphins, they would hold the buttons down to listen to each other and talk 23 hours out of 24. My God. So communication is very important to them. Okay. 
and then um, more. Then he did do the Janus project, which was better than trying to have them make sounds in air. It uh, was a better interface to their capability. And eventually, then um, we can make a vocoder, much of which was worked out by Wayne Bateau and Pat Flanagan years ago. Uh, by which a certain frequency code, like you could assign one frequency per phoneme, and if the dolphins whistled a certain pitch, then the speech synthesizer would come up with a particular sound. So, for example, it only takes 14 sounds to speak Hawaiian, so the right. dolphins hitting 14 different frequencies would allow them to synthesize Hawaiian as speech. All right, so we're talking about phenomes and those sorts of things. Say again? We're talking about phenomes. There's a certain number phonemes. of... Oh, phonemes. Phonemes, I'm yes. sorry. Phonemes, phonemes yes. is the term, yes. Yeah, sound, okay. sound particles. Right, yes. right, right. Okay, okay. And so that's how far they've gotten, and uh, the Navy may have gotten much further, but that's what's publicly admitted. And then one more thing, and then I'll let Paradise add whatever she likes. Uh, some Russian work by Markov and Ostrakaya showed that the dolphins probably had up to a trillion syntactic units and that uh, um, they have a short-term memory of about 12 syllables, if you will. Okay. And so they calculated with, all the, with four separate sounds going simultaneously, the dolphins are able to make very complex syntactic units, if you will. So they calculated the dolphins could have a vocabulary of something like a trillion symbols. Wow. Whether they use them all and so on, we, we zero know yet. But okay. their, their language is very complex and rich. Okay. Very interesting. From a linguistic standpoint, really interesting. Really interesting because, uh, of course, language... Uh, Language is something that's real important, obviously, and it's something that we use in order to uh, express ideas and thoughts. And it's so interesting right now that we're in a time where language is being destroyed and uh, limited in so many different ways. Uh, you know, I look, at, I look at attacks on free speech, for example, as limiting our language. And, uh, mm. um, you know, and, and, and if you look at the indigenous cultures around the, around the planet, those... Uh, when those cultures are assimilated, um, they're one of the, you know, and I know you guys uh, are aware of this being in Hawaii and some of the indigenous folks there, that, that those languages are, are uh, precious. Yes. And, um, and inside of languages there are secrets. <laughs> Uh, th so, so losing languages and having the ability to ha the, the the more complex the language ag again is another allusion to the complexity of the creature overall. I think so. Yes, indeed. Um, I figure the dolphins are just a dolphin is probably processing about forty times the acoustic data that we do. Wow. <laughs> Multitasking big yeah, time. I mean, I mean, yeah. You know, and you you can make two beeps like beep beep and right. then put them closer and closer together until they blur into one. Right. Uh, the dolphin is, you can um, put the beeps ten times closer together than for a human. And do They're four of them at discriminate ten times better. They've got about 20 times the frequency band, <laughs> etc. Right. Hard to even fathom, actually. The, the, uh, the, the, you know, if, if, you, if you imagine that level of information entering into your mind-brain computer... Yes, it, it seems it would be overwhelming. You know what I mean? It's a lot. Yeah. yeah. So, so in order to be able to handle the level of input, um, I think uh, again, obviously, the brain must be very, very uh, highly developed in order to be able to accomplish that. Indeed, it is. Yes. Wow. Um, now, you know, th there was uh, 
one of the things about the brain that we hadn't really talked about, and we just have one uh, a minute or two before the top of the hour, maybe we can just get this out of the way because it's a question that I had. We've talked about the idea of, uh, of a big brain and a small body and why that doesn't happen um, in nature. Uh-huh. Uh, because some people say, well, you know, it, it's just a big brain because it's a big body, and, and, right. and so these creatures aren't that smart. The, the, the size of the brain really isn't that big of a deal, right? Yes, that was a. Uh, it was another early Darwinian idea that just because the body got bigger, the brain got bigger, and the creature would still be considered dumb. Right. However, um, you know, uh, when you have a large, complex structure that eats a lot of infra- uh, a lot of energy, it's doing something. Otherwise, you would zero have it. It takes twenty five percent of your total metabolic energy just to run your brain. Right. So obviously, we use it, and. Uh, if you have a large brain, it becomes more delicate. It's more easily ripped and torn. And so if you have a brain the size of a sperm whale that's six times our size, mm-hmm. you have to have a big body like he does. Otherwise, just the smallest bump would rip your brain. Ah, uh, because of torque and rotational... Uh, torque, uh, um, the way Lily put it, was maximum angular acceleration. Okay, yeah. So you have to minimize the angular acceleration. And there's a curve... Um, I believe I put it on the pictures. I hope I did. Uh, in any case, it turns out that the humans, elephants, dolphins, whales, all have brains as big as they can have for the size of their bodies. Huh. And that all the expansion that they've done is in the neocortex, all the kind of limbic system, motor control kind of things. Right. All those regions stay the same size through right. the whole series. Right, right. So right. the only expansion is in the upper regions that are the uh, more recent development of the brain, like the neocortex. Right, right. Those earlier, those those earlier evolutionary centers, the the, uh, the so-called reptilian and the and the early mammalian, those are basically the same size in the same right. way. Right. The archaeo and paleocortex stay the same size. Okay. And all the expansion is in, is in the neocortex. Wow. And again, that that that's that is an astounding statement there, right there. So, okay, real interesting. All right, we are at the top of the hour, you guys. We're going to take a short break here, and uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, my guests are Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland from the Sirius Institute in Hawaii. They also run a website called planetpuna.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-P-U-N-A.com. And uh, you can uh, go there. And I think at the uh, after the top of the hour, we're going to... Uh, uh, we'll go on the web, and uh, I've got uh, I've got the website up right now, and I'm looking at some of these images that you had up on Jeff's site, and maybe we can talk a little bit about some of that, and uh, maybe we can have Paradise tell her tell her story, and um, uh, in the meantime, we have some music here from a CD that's called Grooved Whale. This is oh, a, nice. Yeah, this is an interesting woman. Her name is Lisa Walker, and what she does is she plays the violin, and she plays it through a uh, uh, What's you guys? What's the name of that phone that you put in the water? Oh, a water phone. Yes. Oh, a water phone. Oh, yeah. Fellow, yeah, one of the fellows, at least who originated it here, I guess, um, was right in our neighborhood. Yeah. Well, this woman, she does it with uh, she does it with a violin, and she plays through a water phone, and then what she's done is record um, the humpback uh, sort of playing back with her. Oh, neat. And, and fabulous. And and this is uh, real similar to to what. Um, 
what you you know, I, and I and I apologize again. I got to listen to the stuff off of the CD from uh, from the Planet Puna website, and I want to talk about that again. And maybe you guys can tell us a little bit about it. In your case, uh, the dolphins and the whales are actually participating in the playing of an instrument. Um, which is which, which is amazing. Now, now in the case of Lisa Walker here, uh, she basically is just recording the um, uh, the clicks and the and the uh, songs of the whales as they sort of respond to her playing. Um, yes. In any case, uh, the CD is called Grooved Whale. Of course, a Grooved Whale is sort of another name for the uh, for the humpback. I think. Back, yes. Uh-huh. And uh, this song is the fourth track on it, and it is called Hawaii Groove. So we'll check it out here. This is uh, Lisa Walker. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back with Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland in just a moment.
All right. Cool stuff there from Laura Walker. That's from her CD called Grooved Whale, and that's Hawaii Groove. And uh, we are back. It's about seven minutes after four. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. My guests are Dr. Michael Heisen and uh, Paradise Newland talking to us live on the telephone from, uh, from Hilo, Hawaii, and uh, sticking around late at night to... Uh, share a lot of real cool information with uh, with me and with all of you guys out there in Radio Land. So, uh, right back to them. Hi, you guys. Hi. Aloha. Aloha. Okay. Um, hey, uh, I think that this would be a great time. I had uh, I had a call earlier, um, somebody who had heard the promo that I had done that would love to hear Paradise's uh, story about uh, the birth that you had with your second son and, and what happened out there in the ocean with some of the, uh, some of the friends that showed up for that event. <laughs> maybe, you could, maybe you could tell, and, and feel free to elaborate. You, we've, got, we've got plenty of time, so tell us, uh, tell us what happened there, okay? All right, thank you. Yeah. Well, I first became interested at all in dolphins when a fellow named Joseph Quinciota um, was being interviewed on a radio station in Texas, and I heard him, and then met him in Las Vegas, and he started talking about this group of people back in the early 80s who were involved in creating a dolphin birthing center in Fiji. And as soon as I heard that, part of my mind went, What? How amazing! I want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And um, up until that time, I had zero interest at all in birth or mothering or dolphins to speak of or anything like that, but there was something about that that touched me very deeply. So years later, again, when the Serious Institute was a screenplay outline, there was this pregnant dolphin researcher, me, wanting to have a baby with the dolphins, and then the reality came to be after we moved to this island and I was pregnant again with my second child. Um, and now, what was I going to do? Because when my first child was born, there had yet to be any place anywhere in the world, really, where one could consistently go to give birth with the dolphins. Right. And now, four and a half years later, the same was the case, except at least now I was in Hawaii. I was close to a beach where the dolphins came, where I had been out in the water with them and so on. So I thought, well, at least I can go give birth in the ocean. So I trained and swam and practiced and worked out kind of, you know. And um, three weeks before his actual birthday, I had just been out in the water with them and came back into shore. I received the string of information which said that my baby would be born early, it would be born mid-August, it would be born August 18th at the beach. (laughs) Wow. I thought, wow, that's really neat, and that's pretty early, but I figured everything was fine. Well, I wrote it on the computer and then promptly forgot all that. But sure enough, August 18th, I woke up, and I had started spotting um, my friend Barbara, who came to help me give birth, uh, came over to check me out and said, yeah, it looks like today could be the day. So at this point... She went back to get her boogie board (laughs) and her gear and everything she would need to help me have a successful birth out in the ocean. So from there, we headed down to the beach, and I was at the top of the cliff looking down and thinking, oh, now I have to make it down to the beach and then out to the water, which was a pretty substantial cliff. It was a 70-foot, you know, cliff walking down, which I had been doing all along and was fully able to do, but now I was in full 
birthing pulse state, and it was a whole different mechanism. But after a few moments, especially when I realized that there were hundreds of dolphins out there, I was able to just kind of float down the cliff and get ready to have my baby, Amazing. thinking he was going to be born out in the water with him. So I got down there and took off my pideo, my cloth, and got in a little kid's pond or keiki pond, as we call it here, okay. and let out a few little yelps and things. And then someone who was with me noticed that my uh, son's foot was hanging out in his water bag instead of his head first. He came out foot first, or he started coming out foot first. Okay. So I was lifted out of the keiki pond and brought on to the beach where Barbara said, well, you know, he can only be delivered on land at this point, or the child can only be delivered on land at this point because they have to come out head first otherwise. And so that changed everything. And she opened the water bag and um, proceeded to spiral him out, which was pretty easy for me, actually, and uh, pretty quick. Uh, pretty intense for just a few minutes, though, but over fairly quickly. And then I had this beautiful baby boy born there on the beach um, with waves, beautiful black sand, a circle of friends and relatives around me, and just a very beautiful setting to give birth. And while this was happening, the fellow who was behind me, oh, yeah, the fellow who was behind me, Narabra, came in from having been out with the dolphins for quite some time, and he had just seen the beginning of a baby dolphin being born. And he thought to himself, wow, this is just too intimate, this is just too close. I'm going to leave now and let you give birth, you know, with your own. But he came in and saw me coming down the cliff and said, that lady's um, going to have her baby and I'm going to go help her. So he came in from seeing the dolphin baby being born, you know, starting to be born, to coming in to helping me give birth um, by being behind me and bringing that wonderful energy of the dolphin birth straight to me. Wow, so there was a simultaneous sort of dolphin birth that was going on at the same time. Yes, Yes. which is why I figured they told me or somehow I got that information three weeks prior that my baby would be coming that day because they would have known that their baby was coming that day. Yeah, one of those MDs. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Or WMD, or DMW, dolphin midwife. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, that, that's In a, fact, Barbara actually had a little dolphin ring on her hand that day. <laughs> wow! Just to help out a little bit. All right. So when so so now uh, when after after your son was born, um, the uh, a, uh, a large number of dolphins were present there in the water or something uh-huh. as well. Three hundred, we estimate. Yeah. Three hundred. Uh-huh. Three hundred. Yes. It was a pretty good crowd, even for that beach. It was pretty substantial. And okay, so here that begs the question. Uh-huh. Um, how? Uh, okay, when you were when 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 you were out swimming with the dolphins or whatever, there was mm-hmm. obviously a transfer of communication. They knew you were pregnant. They the somehow you you got that information uh, uh, sent to you telepathically mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in fact, I think that's something that we need to talk about uh, as as we get a little further into the program here because. Um, I think that's a, that, that's a substantial part of this, but um, so it was almost like not almost, but to me it seems like they knew it was going to happen, and they sort of decided to have a celebration or a party. Yes, well, they often have. Um, well, at least there's like a dolphin midwife or an auntie when a dolphin is getting ready to give birth. Okay. 
so it's you know they have helpers too really? and also just to keep you know any other interests away but the pod is generally around making sure that the sharks are somewhere else you know and that mm-hmm. the baby can come in just fine huh and they give birth pretty quickly you know um they're they're much easier, much more comfortable in their bodies. <laughs> they have less hang-ups about giving birth and, right. you know, bearing their children in sin and all that silliness that we took on. Right, right, right. So, and the water births and, you know, they're in a buoyant environment all the time. So everything about their being and their ease is a reflection of that. Okay. All right. And, so that, and that makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. Oh. All right. Wow. Just, just to add a small part to this, uh, there was one point where I was holding... The baby in my hands, and a wave went across. Never mind. Never mind. Okay, I'll, that's all. And uh, he took a very large breath in my hands. It was just a very magic moment. But what I wanted to get to was just that I swam out into the bay right after the birth, and there, the dolphins were singing so loudly that you could hear the sonar from a foot above the water. And if you went below the water, the it sounded like the entire bay was ringing with their sonar and singing. My God! Oh, and then we, um, then a fisherman came in with his catch. He had been out spearfishing uh-huh. while all this was going on, and he had um, he brought in these beautiful fish, like the unicorn fish and a parrotfish, I think, and yeah. said that he had just seen a baby dolphin, a brand new baby dolphin, and then he came over and saw my brand new child, <laughs> baby dolphin child. <laughs> wow. And, this, and what a, what a it, again, I think about the circle, you know, it's just like this completion mm-hmm. of these circles. It's just incredible. So really cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for sharing that story. That is an incredible, incredible thing. And, uh, I mean, uh, and, and, and certainly from a, from a, uh, um, from a sentimental standpoint it is, but it also is from a scientific standpoint, mm-hmm. you, you know, what the heck is going on here? How did all these, uh, creatures know that this was going on and and uh, they obviously made a decision to uh um to to spend their day <laughs> as it were uh with you guys and uh and it's just an amazing thing so uh so there obviously is this um even if it's on a small scale right now and even if you guys are sort of on the leading edge of this the pioneers uh out on the frontier so to speak uh there is the roots and the basis of uh, social and friendly interaction going here, going on, and it's just the, it's just the coolest thing I've ever heard. So we think so too. Yes, that's why we're so devoted and so committed to following through with creating uh, human dolphin co-creative habitat. We call it much like um, an extended version of what John Lilly had with the uh, submerged rooms, where we could have a interface. Because imagine how exciting it is to be there like in your living room and you've got this little canal coming through and (laughs) the dolphins can come in or one of the dolphins that maybe you're doing a music project with or an art project or some kind of physics experiment because uh, the Sirius Institute was named in essence for the Vienna Institute which is the subject of a remarkable book by Dr. Leo Szilard who is one of the uh, brains behind the Manhattan Project and other things and of course you know who he is and I'm sure many of your audience do and in this book the Vienna Institute dolphins are able to communicate with the researchers and they work together 
they propose all kinds of experiments that go on to win Nobel Prizes. They come up with various um, programs. They buy TV and radio stations and put on a balanced perspective, like the Voice of the Dolphins, they called it, right. so that people had a place where they could go and hear you know, a fair witness account of what was really going on. Um, what else? Oh, yeah, they just did a number of remarkable things. So we fancied ourselves a real-life version out in Pune, Hawaii, of the Vienna Institute. Mm. And through our breakthrough in communications and by being closer to each other, we would be able to do all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And as we discussed early on in the show, a new kind of enterprise zone, let's say, between the humans and cetacea. How much more productive can the world be when we can speak with each other, learn from each other, and develop things from that? Um, this excites us and drives us every day. Yes. Well, it's, it's amazing. And I, and I think, again, for, uh, for anybody listening who, who, who thinks that sounds strange, what do you mean having a, doing a physics project with a dolphin? Look, the, these are... These are these are limits and boundaries that we have to get through uh, these 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 ideas that we have, um, and we have to be able to accept the fact that just because an organism or a creature doesn't look the same as we do or doesn't uh, uh, particularly uh, act or live the way we do, whether it's human or non-human, that that the capabilities uh, cannot be overlooked or discounted and, and, and once you get beyond the, f the physical literally you know and that's what it is if you just get beyond the physical and realize that there's a mind behind these things well then it all becomes very reasonable and, uh, and in fact it becomes uh, uh, a an imperative almost uh, from a scientific standpoint and from a from a personal sociological standpoint it's something that what are we supposed to do are we supposed to you know consciousness is as my as my old friend Terence McKenna used to say uh, consciousness is our defining quality as humans and are we supposed to expand that consciousness are we supposed to become more intuitive and more compassionate and more knowing and understanding of our of our fellow creatures or are we going to become more animal like and more stupid uh you know we've I, already done that right, right. <laughs> it's time to take plan a right so <laughs> the first thing you articulated right so let's go where consciousness wants to go anyway and you know it's like you guys were talking about earlier it's the social and the cultural uh, things that, that that are that are kind of throwing us in this devolutionary spin um, mm -hmm. but I think long term uh, I think long term it's, uh, it's just going to be sort of a bump in the road and uh, and we're going to see some amazing things in the future here so yeah. I think so I think so yes all right. Well, hey, um, Dr. Heisen, would you do me a favor and talk a little bit more about the? I'm totally intrigued by the uh, uh, by the the space um, travel ideas and how dolphins might be involved with that, and how and and and, and also uh, you know how humans might get more involved with it. You know, for the most part, space travel uh, has been something that's relegated to you know NASA, and in fact, uh, if you believe. Uh, you know what you read or whatever NASA has basically made no progress since the early missions I don't particularly believe that but uh, um, uh, in, in, in any case uh, what, what are the potentials for, for humans in space and dolphins and I know you have such a, a great background and knowledge in this area so 
Well, I think there's a great potential for humans in space. There were estimates that even using the antiquated technology we have right now, you could easily have a population living in space equal to or greater than the Earth's population in about 50, say, 100 years at the outside. And uh, that would relieve us of any um, resource limits. For example, about, oh, um, even worst case, something like a billion-dollar mission could tow an asteroid back here that would give us 26,000 years worth of iron globally, a global supply of iron for 26,000 years, plus all the other things that are in the comets, like platinum, gold, everything, right, right. and water. And then uh, basically colonizing the moon and Mars is relatively, r relatively doable. And when you get into the uh, retrieval of the asteroids, then you have plenty of water to grow plants. So uh, one thing one could envision, for example, real quick, just to give an idea for the people, uh, a sphere about a mile across that spins. So you have a uh, centrifugal force that substitutes for gravity. And uh, on the moon, you could have, for example, uh, Fuller, Buckminster Fuller thought you could make domes at least four miles in diameter. Right. So that could fuller. be done on the moon. Right. You could make the domes out of glass. You'd have enough air in them that it would protect you from radiation. Okay. So you could have an open-air environment with trees on the moon if you wanted to. So when you go through all, the, all these possibilities, it's basically that all the room and resources that we need are certainly off the planet. And in the process, I think this starts a feedback loop that helps us appreciate our own planet more because when you realize the only thing like the Earth that is the Earth and, it, and the only thing... Well, we have to find anything like it within light years. Right. And all the other planets and such are pretty cold, <laughs> you know, <laughs> hard to live on. But it can be done. And uh, I happen to think that there are advanced propulsion techniques, uh, things that are coming out of the work, like our friend Nassim Haramin, that will uh, exceed rockets till we think that rockets are probably obsolete blowtorches. Right, they'll just be little Estes rockets that the kids play with, uh, yes. like, mm -hmm. like we did when we were kids. Hey, yes. um, th th oh, oh, yes. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, well, one of the things I wanted to mention is a long time ago, um, uh, John Lilly created a, a, an award called the uh, Order of the Dolphin, and it was for those who had attempted to communicate with an extraterrestrial species mm -hmm. or, or a non-other-than-human uh, species. So the first recipient of that was Frank Drake for Co Project Ozma, where they broadcast a signal out into space for the first time using Arecibo, or no, Greenbelt at that point. They used the Greenbelt radio telescope to transmit a signal to the, to the stars. So one, one of the things we would like to do is have the whales sing live to the stars. So wow. we're working on that to revive that kind of um, opportunity. And in those early days, in the early days of NASA with all the enthusiasm, they were actually helping to fund John Lilly's work because they felt that we should get some practice talking with aliens before they actually uh, made contact. Before he actually made contact, yes. Huh. And uh, at least part of his work was as practice for that. Astounding. Yeah. So, uh, let's see. Um, so I think, I, I think uh, I've always thought in terms of space that, that all these things, feedback, for example, throwing something in orbit, you learn how to make it lighter, by trying to make a biosystem that runs and grows plants in space, you learn a lot more about your own biosystems here. So um, I think in the and all the astronauts that went up into space 
looked back at the earth and just saw it as such a most beautiful thing. They came back transformed into people that wanted the planet to survive, you know, and could see how fragile it might be. Yeah, many of them did. I, I'm, I'm familiar with uh, Edgar Mitchell in particular, uh, who's, who's had had quite a transformation after he uh, after he did his Apollo missions and uh, and some of the stuff he did at, after that for NASA. So. So, so the dolphin part of it is just perhaps my greatest dream that it would be fun to go to space with our best partners. Right, and you know, uh, I guess the um, you know there's a concern these days about space and what we're actually doing there, and you know, are we what what direction will we take um, as we leave the planet and you know will we militarize space and turn it into a, a weapons platform which I believe to a certain extent has already occurred um, or will we start to uh, uh, to use it with with wisdom you know with a little bit of uh, with a little bit of intelligence as opposed to intellect like our friend Joe Pierce talks about I, I definitely <laughs> I definitely pray for the wisdom <laughs> yeah also, I've felt all along that the only way humans will truly be spacefaring is when we have sorted out the things on our Earth and our relationship to it and each other and all of life here. We have to have that sorted out before we can go elsewhere. Why would we, um, why would we really be able to leave this area until we had things worked out? Right, and then there's the flip side of that, and it's four thirty in the morning here, so I can so I can talk about this stuff on the air now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good. You know, uh, there's also the, the 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 opposite argument that say that we we may not be allowed to leave this planet. Uh, 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 you know, until we uh, until we until we learn to play in the sandbox nicely. You know. Yes. Um, there's a possibility. Yeah. And there's a possibility of that as well. Certainly, you know, not more speculation for sure for sure, but 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 the possibility exists. So. Anyway, okay. Listen, we're at the uh, we're at the bottom of the hour here. We've got a half hour left. We're going to play another little piece of music here, and uh, we'll come back with my guest, Dr. Heisen, Dr. Michael Heisen, and uh, uh, his associate, Ms. Paradise Newland. We're having a wonderful conversation here, talking about dolphins and whales and the amazing abilities of these uh, these creatures, these friends of ours, these emissaries from the uh, from the water world that we're a part of, and um, just a uh, a, a wonderful conversation. So we'll be back in about uh, four or five minutes here. And if you guys don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about the telepathic um, ideas when we get back. Oh, good. All right, we'll do that, and we'll be back in just a minute. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN.
that's where he will stay. When on the weather vane, fear and blue eyes sailing me. The small steps sing the song for a friend, for a boy fiddler's dream. Hip. That was a song called Fiddler's Green from their CD Road Apples. All right, uh, it's Mike Hagan, Radio Orbit, KOPN. It's 4.35 a.m., and I'm on the line with my friends Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland from the Sirius Institute in Puna, Hawaii, and we've been talking about dolphins and whales and uh, just having a fascinating conversation for the last hour and a half or so, and we're going to continue it right now. 
and uh, Paradise, um, at the right before the the break there, we talked. We were we were mentioning telepathy, and um, uh, that's something that seems to be apparently happening between humans and dolphins. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about your experience and what you guys are finding uh, in your in your studies there. Well, before I actually even ever met the dolphins, I had read a number of books about them, and I was um, taken by the fact that time and again people were reporting experiences that to me as an observer were very clearly telepathic okay. like someone would be driving down the road um, miles and miles away from where um, they usually were looking, ab- uh, looking for this particular dolphin is one story I'm thinking of and then the man stopped and got out of his car and was looking around for this one dolphin and then lo and behold the dolphin was like right out there okay. now, again this was remarkable because it was miles and miles away from where they usually connected and everything and I thought well how does the dolphin know where the guy is and that he stopped his car that time and even my own earlier experiences when um, I was in Mexico and was by the beach and um, doing yoga and I saw a fin coming towards me and it was this dolphin and I got the message that the dolphin appreciated that I had turned down the dolphin fish in the restaurant the night before. Wow. Even though, um, this is a funny message to me, believe me, but it's like, oh yeah, I come to tell you thank you, even though it's different than it was dolphins like us, but the fact that you have that thoughtfulness. Huh. So I've come to give you this message, and then it swam down along the beach, and I was so excited, I was running alongside the beach, and when I had to stop to catch my breath, it would stop and spin and jump and do all kinds of things that delighted me, and I watched it swim out to its pod and watched them for quite some time. So all along, my relationship with the dolphins has had to do with some kind of telepathic connection. Amazing. Yes. And so I was inspired and invited to write an article about it for um, a friend over on Maui, the Dancing Dolphin Institute, and it's called Telepathy's Gift, which is on Planet Puna, under writings, and it explains how this whole idea of telepathy was so important to me, but how it's a gift to all of us to know that we're connected, to know that there are those amongst us and amongst the people of the sea who know us, who can share information with us who can read us like a book this meant this was a profound change in my reality tunnel as um, Anton Wilson would say okay well um, and I'd like to add to that uh, again that this the idea of telepathy um, is no longer uh, sort of relegated to the uh, you know to the dungeon of new age hocus pocus Uh, the uh, some of the discoveries uh, that have come from the ideas of quantum mechanics and quantum physics, uh, in particular the idea of non-locality and non-local mm-hmm. fields, mm-hmm. Um, this idea of the, of the field effect, um, really makes uh, telepathy something that now becomes a viable uh, scientific, at least uh, at least a vi- uh, at least a viable area of of, uh, of study. Yeah. Um, so uh, I just wanted to add that because it's uh, you know, you know it, it's been considered uh, metaphysical and sort of right. this, uh, this sort of new age thing, but 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 it really is sort of being borne out now. So yes, well, if uh, I just read a report by Harmut Mueller, if this turns out to be so, he's um, 
doing something roughly equivalent to radio communication using standing gravitational waves. Hmm. The communication is said to be instant, so it has ah. some of the characteristics expected of telepathy. Right. We kind of say, uh, I have a friend that talks about the speed of thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fast. <laughs> uh, right. And, uh, you know, we talk about the speed of, speed of light, but we actually kind of move at the speed of oh, thought. Oh, the speed you know. of spaghetti, too. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. Well, it's only almost 1230 here. Well, on the telepathy thing real quick, I asked John Lilly the question once about human dolphin telepathy. He said, mm -hmm. happens all the time. Look bored, walked away. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, it was no so common deal. to him. Right. Um, a uh, trainer named Rudolph at Dolphins Plus had been teaching them telepathically for 25 years. He would get an image of what he wanted them to do and sort of ship it to them, think it to them. And if they wanted to, they would do it within about 10, 15 minutes. Um, and I've had similar telepathic experiences, just wanting them to come over and thinking it very clearly, and they and they did. Well, let me ask you this: what about uh, what about communication with the cetacean uh, from uh, landlocked mid Missouri, like a guy like me? In other words, do you have to be present, uh, or uh, the ideas of non-locality would would kind of suggest to me that you don't have to be there. Could you, is is it possible to communicate with uh, anywhere, anytime, yeah. any place? Anywhere, anytime, any place. Right. Just need a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of understanding on how to do that. Some self-discipline and the, in and, mm -hmm. and the intention. Just maybe just get relaxed, open up, and ask. Right. Right. And open your heart, because you know the Aboriginal people consider that telepathy, and of course. Telepathy is a natural function. Mm -hmm. What's weird is that we've stopped being connected to our telepathy. Correct. And the Aboriginal people feel that the most important aspect really is the open heart, so that people who have kindness and love and aloha in their hearts for other life will have greater ease in communicating with them mm -hmm. at that telepathic level. Right, right, right. And again, being born out in the laboratory. And, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the heart is a frequent topic of discussion on this program. And, and, and now we know that there are these direct connections between the heart and the brain. And, right. and, and Winter's work and stuff like right, that. Right, and it's a big part of the way we process information. And if we cut off that connection between the heart, the heart is much more than a pump. And, uh, and, and all the information that it lends to the entire system gets, mm -hmm. uh, gets lost. And that's when we end up... Up, uh, in deep trouble, and that's where we are. So, but uh, uh, like you say, there are there are there are many people that are uh, that, that are realizing these things, and there's a lot of tremendous work going on right now. So, yeah. So anyway, okay. Um, let's see. We want to talk about uh, certainly about the therapy that's going on there, and about the DNA uh, 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 the DNA things that we're seeing. Maybe maybe you could clarify that uh, for us, uh, Michael. Yes. Um there have been um, many reports over the years of uh, various people being healed, especially children, uh, or at least greatly improved by dolphins or being around them. Um, Hank Truby was the first one, for example, to take autistic children to see the dolphins. Their attention span went up to, from five minutes up to about an hour and a half on the first try. Um, other people have reported uh, a girl with cerebral palsy whose mental age went from three to four months to about three to four years after a week with the dolphins. Uh, other similar results with Down syndrome and other diseases. So uh, the question became, what's going on? And obviously they have powerful sound fields. Right. Recently we found out that the structure in their forehead called the melon is piezoelectric, uh, which means if it's uh, vibrated by sound, it will create an electric field. Hmm. 
Now, if the uh, pumping efficiency is reasonable, then the dolphins ought to be able to put out at least 100 watts of electric power, probably more. And um, it is in the literature very clearly that uh, both sonic and pulse microwave and other electric signals change the DNA. Okay. The most specific is um, Ross Aidey's work where he pulsed microwaves and was able to turn particular genes on and off. So we can show that the dolphins have the capability of putting out the right fields, both acoustically and sonic uh, and electrically, to change the DNA expression. Mm -hmm. Yes, and this has been written up with a lot more correlative data in a book by Dr. Len Horowitz uh, called DNA, Pirates of the Sacred Spiral. Mm -hmm. And... Len was kind enough to include part of my chapter, which is available on the website. Um, my chapter, well, my chapter was called Dolphin Therapy and Autism. His chapter 12 in DNA Pirates of the Sacred Spiral is the uh, uh, electrodynamics of alternative healing methods. And he included a lot of our work with the dolphins there. Wow, interesting. And, uh, so if your listeners are interested in reading DNA Pirates of the Sacred Spiral and getting a lot of uh, correlative data about what Len likes to call electrogenetics, the effects of things like structured water and the changes caused in these structured water liquid crystals that, are, that happen when we're in electric fields or acoustic fields. Mm. He's got a lot of data on that, and it's a very extensive book. Anyway, the number is 888-508-4787. Uh, and if you talk to Elaine Zaki there, there'll be a show special where you could get our CD in the book great, for a great. special price, if you like. All right. Hey, let's make sure we give that number out again before the end of the show here, okay? All right. Um, but, hey, um, uh, go, go ahead, Dr. Ice. Oh, just I was going to say, but specifically also, the, the dolphins can target their sounds to spots smaller than a millimeter. And by using um, four separate sound sources, which they have, maybe five, uh, they can do... Mm, thing, tricks like phased arrays do or or um, uh, another technique is called time-reversed acoustics. Mm -hmm. Another technique is kind of like interferometry. Right. They can do all kinds right. of games like that. And uh, specifically and very quickly, um, a dolphin named Dreamer put about 20 sonar pulses into my head and neck area and fixed, very much improved an old neck injury I had when I was 12. And this was when I was 40, so... Um, I think she polished a bone spur, that sort of thing, and then three vertebrae clicked into new positions about an hour later. Amazing. And, and uh, she did that directly. And so they're able to see through your body with their acoustics, uh, almost like an acoustic x-ray, if you will, right. or an ultrasound image, right. and are able to figure out what to do and then just spontaneously do it. <laughs> Ama um, amazing. Now, now the you know you know, and and that's where we get into a little bit. Well, not a little bit. We get into the, some big question marks there because uh, certainly using their uh, acoustic abilities, uh, they can basically see through uh, and and maybe get a three dimensional uh, image of the human body, right? Yes. Um, but but then being able to diagnose number one that there's a problem in a certain area and then number two being able to resolve that uh, that problem to bring it back to its original state or whatever I mean having the but again we go back to this idea possibly about the historical 
relevance and how long they've been here. And perhaps they're very, very, very familiar with the anatomy physiology of the human being. In fact, maybe more. In fact, maybe much so, more so than us. Well, even like at a more fundamental level, if they were just able to sense blockages right, in right, a person's right, right. energy field oh, okay, okay. and could release those blockages. Right. through um, the application of sound or higher consciousness energies or something that'd be different than they'd have to say oh yeah this means this kind of condition or that right, right, it would right. just be more an overall response to um, resistance or blockages that they could open up and help circulation occur again in all the ways that we need strong circulation even when they get our hearts all excited and happy when we've seen them they're helping um, in a healing way or in a therapeutic way right so not necessarily diagnosing it's more like just recognizing that something's not particularly right and making it mm -hmm. right Making yeah. it better, yeah. Right. Interesting. Hey, you guys, before we run out of time, I have a note here, and there's something that um, uh, that I have to ask you. It's, it's sort of relevant to a personal uh, field of study that I'm doing, but I want to talk about water real fast. Water, oh, good. W water in and of itself is a very interesting um, uh, element, and and it the, the dolphins and the whales have perfect mastery of that element and even on a mystical level you know that the, the the water is these three atoms that combine to make one you know it's sort of the mm -hmm. trinity idea and um and I, I was going to ask you a question about uh, dr heisen about your knowledge of space and this sort of stuff is water common in the universe or is water more uh uh, more rare, more of an anomaly, and that this planet might be a little bit of oh. different. Well, water is common. Okay. It comes in comets, in the Oort cloud. Um, um, a lot of the Galilean moons are coated with ice and so on. The rare thing is liquid water. And within our region of the dry planets, dry inner planets like the Earth, um, uh, like there's very little water on the moon, mm -hmm. for example. But, right. but if you go further out, there's plenty of water, but it's ice. So liquid water is very rare. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, th that 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 is pretty much uh, an answer to my question. But but yeah. the and, but I do there, there's a, there's a there's a big significance that these creatures are uh, are so handy <laughs> with water and the, and the, the you know the. Uh, what they showed with the silver rings, that story, uh, oh, it's it just an amazing thing about uh, you know how they can control these vortices and stuff. And I think it's got to be related to the piezoelectric thing and the electromagnetism and anti-gravitics, and I think it's all connected. <laughs> I think you could be right. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's see. We want to cover uh, language sculpting and birth? Yes, yes. Let's talk about those two things. Well, um... First of all, the whole idea of a dolphin-attended birth has been around for quite some time, and indeed Hawaiians practiced this up till sometime in the last century. So, And we know from other cultures that water birth has been practiced for thousands of years all across the planet because people innately and intuitively would have realized the benefits of this kind of birth. And the special connection children born this way have to the water back to your point just a moment ago about how special is water and about the mystical qualities of water well the Russians and other cultures believe that children born into water are connected have different kinds of abilities with respect to the sea creatures and children born with dolphins in Russia 
to Igor Tchaikovsky's work, um, when they came back the next year and the years after that, the dolphins who were there at their birth kept coming back to see these children. Amazing. So it is amazing because one of the things we're here to do in Hawaii is to create a dolphin-attended birthing center as, and as part of this to have a way for human children and dolphin children, so to speak, to interact with each other from early on. Imagine again what it would be like to have our babies born together, raised together, played together, share and develop a common language with each other that they could each go back to their own cultures oh. and pass on to us. Oh, paradise. I have I have a one-year-old son. Yes. And... Uh, and I, I made a promise to him a couple of weeks ago <laughs> uh-huh. as, I, as, I, as I dug out my old John Lilly stuff and started to get more involved with some of the stuff that you all are doing. And I promised him that I'm going to make it possible somehow uh, in his youth uh, to get him in the water with, um, with, with these incredible creatures so um i'm i'm, 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 I'm gonna, i know i know and I'm, I, I know i'm gonna i'm gonna find a way to do it so hey look um look uh i unfortunately we are about out of time and i want to be able to give out the website address and i want to give out that phone number again for the book and for the cd uh so let's do that um real fast and then and then, then we'll say goodbye real quick and play one last song but all right all right so the the book is called dna pirates of the sacred spiral it's by dr len horowitz and you can order it at 888-508-4787, 888-508-4787. Our website is www.planetpuna.com. And, um, and then um, when people go to planetpuna.com, the first thing they're going to see up there is our poster, our, our reference, rather, to our Domestic Harmony concert, which we're having Wednesday. All because right. we've declared in this island and in this state that November is Domestic Harmony Awareness Month, which is something that the dolphins very much inspired. Because, again, if we want to live in a harmonious world, we have to be harmonious inside. Mm. And so thinking about domestic harmony is kind of like how the dolphins live all the time, pretty well all the time. So this is one of our ways of emulating that and helping bring people together to live on pod and to uh, just bring the dolphin vibration home, you know? All right. All right. Well, uh, uh, there it is, you guys. Uh, the website, one more time, uh, planetpuna.com. Yes. And should you want to uh, support our work and wish to gift to it, uh, there are PayPal. Uh, there's a place to click for PayPal. I think things like that. All right. There's and a, uh, we have a CD available where the humpbacks are playing a MIDI musical instrument and some other things like that. Right. It's called uh, Humpbacks and Dolphins Sing. Uh, what, uh, what we call it the Cetacea Whales and Dolphins Sing. Ah, okay. Well, I actually heard a couple clips off of it, and like I said, I wanted to play it, but I wasn't able to get the technology to cooperate with me. So. Um, uh, in any case, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, my guests have been Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland from the Sirius Institute in Puna, Hawaii. We've been discussing for the last two hours the amazing brethren of ours in the sea, the dolphins and the whales. And um, you guys, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again. We'll definitely set this up. Like I said, uh, um, I'd love to have you on here for regular updates so we can uh, so we can keep spreading this information and let people know uh, what kind of progress you're making and um and and share some of this good news there's plenty of bad news let's share some of this good stuff so 
Excellent. Yeah. Yes. Um, there was a message from the whales shortly after 9-11, and the message was to remember what side of the dream we wanted to wake up on. Wow. Well, okay, I think that's a good place to end it here. We're going to play one last song. You guys stick on the line, okay? Um, right. This is uh, in honor of our friends, the dolphins. This is a band called The Blessing, and the song is called Prince of the Deep Water. Oh, uh, thank you. Mahalo uh, so much, Mike, and to your yeah. audience. Mahalo, Nui Loa. Thank you very much. Aloha, you guys. Aloha. It was great.